Welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio Issue 5, January 2020. Expertly recorded the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial We're all about elongated craniums this month. In our xenomorphic cover article, we revisit Ridley Scott's Alien, 40 years after the film was first released, to find out why it was so seminal and influential. We also take a look at the outstanding game Alien Isolation, arguably the truest to the original 1979 film of any entry to the Alien franchise, regardless of medium. If that's not hugging your face enough, even this issue's miniature of the month looks like it came from the imagination of H.R. Giger. Continuing the theme, we also crunch the numbers on how likely alien life really is in our galaxy, and interview one of Britain's best-loved horror authors, the marvellous Priya Sharma, to find out what makes for true terror. On a broader note, you're probably embarking on a punishing New Year regimen of eating healthily, not drinking, going to the gym more, and other wearisome examples of self-flagellation. Don't bother. January is already the most tedious month of the year, with none of the jollity that improves December. It doesn't need your asceticism to make it any worse. Go easy on yourself. We can help. Also in this issue, we catch up with the head of one of the UK's best independent genre publishers, discover the best-selling epic fantasy author you'll never have heard of, continue our series of guides for game masters, pick apart Tob Phillips' Joker, explore the remarkable mind of Jorge Luis Borges, and blow stuff up in Space Engineers. We've also got our regular grab bag of book and board game reviews, as well as original fiction. Lots of stuff that's more fun than jogging. What about my new gym membership, I hear you ask? Nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. The Infinite Hex Crawl. An essay on Jorge Luis Borges' The Library of Babel. I was introduced to the writings of Jorge Luis Borges through my love of the late great American fantasist Gene Wolfe. This was the writer that inspired to a great degree the duplicitous, sneaky, and downright brilliant creator of Severian and Latro, two of fantasy's most memorable protagonists. Borges is the type of writer that is at once easily accessible and, I would argue, like Wolfe, highly confounding. His stories only last a few pages, yet they are densely packed with esoteric and philosophical information. Borges is a book nerd's dream, an endlessly inventive perpetual motion device who reset the boundaries on what short fiction could accomplish. The man had an encyclopedic knowledge on such diverse and wide-ranging subjects as world mythology, Shakespeare, Don Quixote, the Bible and the Koran, alternate worlds, Chinese pirates, the thugs of the new world and the nature of infinity, although there are many wonderful stories of his to choose from. I'm of the opinion that the Library of Babel best encapsulate his strengths as a writer. It is the platonic ideal of a Borges story. It provides a glimpse into the man's boundless imagination. Borges does not mince words. Concerning his construct, he states at the very beginning of the tale, the universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps infinite, number of hexagonal galleries. In the centre of each gallery is a ventilation shaft, bounded by a low railing. From any hexagon, one can see the floors above and below, one after another, endlessly. The arrangement of the galleries is always the same. 
Twenty bookshelves, five to each side, line four of the hexagon's six sides. The height of the bookshelves, floor to ceiling, is hardly greater than the height of a normal librarian. One of the hexagon's free sides opens onto a narrow sort of vestibule, which in turn opens onto another gallery identical to the first, identical, in fact, to all. To the left and right of the vestibule are two tiny compartments. One is for sleeping upright, the other for satisfying one's physical necessities. Through this space, too, there passes a spiral staircase which winds upwards and downwards into the remotest distance. An infinite library as expansive as the universe, in essence a bibliophile's notion of paradise, right? It's not that simple. If a structure can hold all the books that were ever written, and all the books that ever will be written and can be written, it is fundamentally incompatible with our finite human lives and senses. What initially seems like a paradise quickly becomes a limbo, in which every variation of all books is present. The human mind and our decades-long lifespans are flawed tools for delving into this labyrinth of letters. Just try to imagine an infinite, or perhaps more accurately near-infinite, number of hexagonal alcoves, comprised of five bookshelves containing 32 identically formatted books per shelf of 410 pages. Each page contains 40 lines, with each line containing 80 black letters. Borges writes, 1 that the library is so huge that any reduction by human hands must be infinitesimal, and two, that each book is unique and irreplaceable, but since the library is total, there are always several hundred thousand imperfect facsimiles, books that differ by no more than a single letter or a comma. These minute variations per volume repeat themselves almost ad infinitum, somewhat like fractals, which to the human eye would seem as if by chance or at random. Borges' idea of a near-infinite library recalls a similar concept utilised by the comic book savant Grant Morrison. If the Borges construct is a sphere whose exact centre is any hexagon and whose circumference is unattainable, then the Morrison execution of this idea is its direct antithesis. In 2008's Final Crisis, Superman Beyond 3D, Issue 1, Superman and some of his alternate world avatars travel the multiverse via Shift Ship and become stranded in a dimension known as Limbo. Searching for a means of escape, they enter the Library of Limbo, which has only one book, and no one can read it. This book is drawn as a floating page nestled within a sphere of translucent St. Elmo's fire. When Superman and Captain Marvel try to lift it, they come to the realisation that this page has a super-dense astronomical mass, and they are pushed to the limits of their powers just to move it. The page is the Library of Babel in reverse, a book with an infinite number of pages, all occupying the same space. In essence, these two superheroes are trying to lift infinity. Trippy stuff indeed. The various travellers to Borges' library, known as Hex Pilgrims, spend their days wandering from hex to hex, ever searching for any signal in the vast noise of indecipherable books. 
Naturally, this type of environment also gives rise to people who wish to contain and control it. A sect known as the Purifiers destroy entire walls of books deemed worthless. Their ultimate goal to reach the fabled Crimson Hexagon, which supposedly contains books that are smaller than natural books, omnipotent and magical. Another legend that grows among the Hex pilgrims is that of the Bookman, a librarian who absorbed a volume that is a cipher and perfect compendium of all other books. The Library of Babel is a wonderful introduction to the works of this modern-day Daedalus. Read his stories and prepare yourself to be lost in the infinite. Aliens, are they out there? It's the ultimate question. Are we alone in the universe? The question remains utterly unanswered, but it's one that concerns us at this magazine more than most. Science fiction is our bread and butter, and a fundamental plank of science fiction is the concept of intelligences from places other than Earth. This writer is not a scientist, so rather than an exhaustive analysis, I'll try to simply summarise the thinking on the matter as it stands today. Although sightings of unidentified flying objects date back at least to the 17th century, it wasn't until the 1940s that sightings of aliens really took off, coinciding with a rapid acceleration of scientific understanding of the cosmos and rocketry. The knowledge that space is very large, and suns and planets very numerous, inevitably led to the assumption that we cannot be alone in the universe. However, there is one fundamental, inescapable and terrifying fact that flies in the face of the probabilities. We have not, during the time we've been looking, seen a shred of evidence that any intelligence beyond our own exists in our universe. Eerily regular radio pulses turn out to be spinning neutron stars. Canals on Mars turned out to be an optical illusion. Space is utterly empty of ordered electromagnetic activity, in any direction and of any age. The explanations for this are many. We're not looking the right way. Aliens are already here, hiding among us. The universe is so old that we'd be very unlikely to coexist with anyone. We're in an alien zoo. Space is so large and life so unlikely that any other civilization is too far away for light to reach them within the lifetime of the universe and so on. There are arguments for and against all of these, some more than others, but they coalesce into two basic suppositions. Either we're alone in the universe, or we're not. The observable universe is 90 billion light-years in diameter, observable being the area across which light has had time to travel since the Big Bang. It contains somewhere in the region of 100 billion galaxies, each with several hundred billion stars. If 10% of these stars have planets, and 1% of those planets are habitable, and 0.1% of those have life, and 0.01% of those have sentient life, that's still 6 trillion civilizations in the universe and the universe could be very much larger than we can observe. However, it's not very useful to think about what life might exist in other galaxies. Galaxies are arranged in clusters. Ours includes the Milky Way, Andromeda, the Magellanic Clouds, and some dwarf galaxies. Two forces are at work upon galaxies. Gravity, which draws members of a cluster closer together, and the expansion of the universe itself, which draws the clusters themselves further apart from one another. Realistically, 
any area of the universe not within our local cluster will always be utterly inaccessible to us, because the distance between us and it is increasing so quickly. More meaningful then to look at our own galaxy. The Milky Way contains somewhere between 100 billion and 400 billion star systems, some of which may be binary or trinary systems. The study of exoplanets, or planets orbiting stars other than our Sun, is in its infancy today. But we've already discovered more than 2,500 other stars which have planets, and we've only just started looking. There are around 20 billion stars like ours in the Milky Way, and it was estimated by the National Academy of Sciences in 2013 that something like 22% of those might have a rocky planet at the right distance to hold liquid water, which would mean about 4 billion planets a lot like Earth. Calculations like this were first posited by the astronomer Frank Drake in 1961. Collectively known as the Drake Equation, the maths necessarily, for now, relies upon much supposition. But it is a useful way to get to grips with the orders of magnitude involved, and the probabilities that very large numbers imply. Even if something is very unlikely, in a very large universe, it's still likely to have happened many, many times. TRAPPIST-1 is a star just under 40 light-years from Earth, which, between 2015 and 2017, was discovered to have no fewer than seven planets, three of which are within the so-called habitable zone. 40 light-years is very close indeed. The Milky Way is around 100,000 light-years in diameter. OK, there may be many rocky planets with water in our galaxy, but how easy would it be for life to develop? How miraculous is the spark that turns inanimate matter into living things? There is some evidence that life may have developed on Earth several times, independently. Some geothermal vents in the very deep parts of the ocean, thought to have been totally isolated from the rest of the Earth's life, have been discovered to host thriving and completely closed ecosystems, with organisms not found anywhere else on Earth. It is unlikely that these living things migrated to such remote places, which suggests that abiogenesis, or the process of life beginning, may have occurred on this planet several times. If so, it might suggest that, should the essentials like a liquid solvent such as water be present, simple life might reliably emerge on other planets too. If life emerged on only 0.1% of those 4 billion rocky planets with liquid water in the Milky Way, that's still 4 million planets with life in our galaxy alone. However, there is a big assumption here, that the only things life needs to come into being are a liquid solvent, complex chemistry, and the absence of an extinction event. Earth could have some other characteristic that we haven't identified yet that is necessary for the creation of life. Extinction events are also not rare. In Earth's history, there have been five. Most are linked to dramatic climate change, but at least one has been the result of an asteroid impact. Supernovae, too, are common and deadly. It is thought that a star explodes somewhere in the Milky Way a couple of times per century, and any planet caught in the 100 light-year blast radius would instantly be sterilised. Neither do planets remain unchanged for all time. There is some evidence that Venus may have once held liquid water before a runaway greenhouse effect turned it into the hell we see today. And Mars appears to have once hosted liquid water when it had more of an atmosphere, and we haven't yet found any organic matter there. Life can come in many flavours, from algae to rocket-designing bipeds. It is possible that simple life might readily evolve on any of our four million planets but that extinction events might be just too regular to allow it to evolve into complexity or sentience. According to this scenario, we exist because simply there has been a longer lull than usual between extinctions. Planet Earth is about a third as old as the universe itself, which is also pretty old by now. 
In terms of dynamic stages, it is thought that the universe is now in its last, and, though it will take a bafflingly long time for every star to die, we are on the home stretch, as it were, in which star and galaxy formation is slowing greatly. Life on Earth has also had several bites at the cherry to get this far. We think that life emerged on this planet within its first billion years, but multicellular life might only have come about in the last billion years, the latter third of Earth's history. Interesting things like dinosaurs only turned up in the last 250 million years or so. If the history of Earth was a day, dinosaurs would have turned up at about 10.40pm. We arrive seconds before midnight. The earliest approximation to civilization is the ruins of what we think is a temple in Gobekli Tepe, in Turkey, which is around 12,000 years old. We emitted our first electromagnetic whispers to the rest of the universe a mere hundred years ago or so. So, we have been around and asking the question for a vanishingly small amount of time, and it took a cosmically long time and several full starts for a species like us to emerge. Complex sentient life could have developed in Milky Way millions of times in the millennia it has taken us to get our shit together, and many planets are a few billion years older than the Earth. Several parallel studies set by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory this year tackled the question of how long it would take a spacefaring species to colonise every habitable planet in the Milky Way, with generation ships supporting thousands of humans. Thanks to the magic of exponents, the winning team's estimate was that it might take 90 million years to colonise every suitable planet in our galaxy. The Milky Way is about 13.5 billion years old, so a spacefaring species could have colonised the whole thing 150 times before we came along to look. If intelligent aliens have ever existed in the Milky Way, and sought, like ourselves, to grow and expand, they would have left a trace of themselves. This mystery was first posited by a physicist called Enrico Fermi, in the question, where is everybody? There are several possible resolutions to the Fermi paradox, as this question is known. Alien civilizations could all ascend to some higher undetectable state of being in their first few million years. This is more plausible than it sounds, because video games are fun and space is mostly hostile and boring. Another solution is that life itself could be fiendish and hard to make, and Earth is somehow unique. Perhaps life may be common given the opportunity, but complex life might be hard, very hard. Or perhaps most scarily, intelligent life might naturally emerge from a life-bearing planet given enough time, but something about the nature of intelligence causes its own destruction before it can make many forays into space. Regardless, some part of the journey from gooey organic chemistry to galaxy-conquering superintelligence appears to be very difficult. Indeed, one stage of a species' development appears to stop it in its tracks before it can conquer the Milky Way. If not, it would have happened already. The key question is, which stage is the hard bit? This concept is known as the Great Filter. The possible resolutions to the Fermi paradox can be summed up in two general scenarios. One, getting to where we are now is very, very hard, and we are the first. Two, getting to where we are now is fairly commonplace, but at some point soon after where we are now, i.e. the point at which a species starts sending signals out into the cosmos, they are snuffed out by some catastrophic event. Option one would be good news. We've overcome the biggest trials life can face, and the universe is our prize. Option two would be devastatingly bad. The galaxy is quiet because it's littered with dead civilizations like ours. We've only just started sending our signals into space. 
If the same forces that killed off all the other civilizations are conspiring to do the same to us, it will necessarily happen soon. Happily, there are several stages of the development between the Wrigley Goo and Chartered Accountancy that could be the very hard bit. So it's entirely possible that we are the Milky Way's first civilization. One of these is the improbability of mitochondria, little rod-shaped structures that swim around ourselves, and those of all animals and plants, enabling respiration with oxygen and creating energy for their hosts. The remarkable thing about mitochondria is that they have their own DNA and seem to reproduce independently of their host cells. This implies that at some point in life's very distant past, one species of microorganism consumed another. But rather than breaking it down, struck up a symbiotic relationship with it. The host cell provides the structure and food. The mitochondria provides the energy. This allowed complex life to develop. It is difficult to know how much of a fluke this was, but it seems fantastically improbable, as well as throwing an interesting light on the concept of an individual organism. It is also tempting to think of progress from primeval dawn to humanity as a linear, determined thing. It's not. We ourselves are wildly improbable. Our brains are stupidly, ludicrously expensive in terms of energy. Yes, they have allowed us for a degree of social and tool-making intelligence that has set us apart from every other animal on our planet, but come at a great cost. They are so large that we must give birth mid-gestation, forcing us to carry around our fetuses for several months like marsupials. Despite this compromise, Fetal brains are still so large that pushing them out of our pelvises, narrowed to allow us to run on two legs, is formidably dangerous and difficult. In nature, modern humans have the highest rate of death in childbirth of any animal on Earth. It's not hard to imagine a prehistory in which this extraordinary gamble on problem-solving ability had not paid off, and we were all eaten by lions. So, it is easy to conclude that we are utterly, totally alone. We are the only living things able to meaningfully form the question or search for an answer. It isn't correct to say that all the evidence points to this, but it is true that there is no evidence to refute it. We've been searching the cosmos for signs of someone else out there for several decades now and have heard nothing. So, we're alone or we're fucked, right? The Milky Way is like a party we arrived late to. The buffet is still fully loaded. Nobody's eaten a single cocktail sausage. Does that mean there's nobody else here? Not necessarily. Perhaps there are loads of other guests here, and they're just in a different room. Perhaps they don't like chipolatas. Perhaps the traffic is really bad, and we're actually early, because we had all the green traffic lights on the way in. If another civilization sprang up a billion years ago, they would have had time to conquer the Milky Way ten times over. That they haven't implies that they were never there. Space travel is far harder or less appealing than we think it is, or that life rapidly ascends to a plane of being we can't yet comprehend. However, this article is littered with assumptions. Assumptions about the distributions of planets and stars. Assumptions about the components needed for life to develop. Assumptions about the way civilizations behave. As the time frames we've discussed should suggest, we are barely in the embryonic stages of understanding the nature of life and space. It is useful and mind-expanding to think about the numbers, distances, timescales and probabilities these questions involve, but perhaps more useful ultimately to remember how much we don't know. Board Game Review Quacks of Quedlinburg
Imagine yourself as an alchemist in the Middle Ages, struggling to be the very best in a market town full of alchemists. The only way you can rise to the top is by selling the best potion over a series of days. How do you make the best potion? Throw random ingredients into a cauldron and either make the best brew or blow up in the process. Does that make any sense to you? No. I join the club. <laughs> However, Quacks of Quedlinburg is one of the most thoroughly enjoyable games to be released in recent times. It won the coveted Kennespiel der Jahre Award in 2018 and has been steadily finding a huge audience over the last year. Quacks of Quedlinburg is a game in which players have a basic set of ingredient tokens in a bag, which are drawn and added to a cauldron to make a concoction. The number on the token indicates how far along the progress track to place the ingredient, and at the end of the process, players go to market to gain victory points and also money to spend on new ingredients. These new ingredients go into the bag, the cauldron is emptied into the bag for the next day, and the process begins over. The challenge is that this is a push-your-luck game. Your bag starts with mostly white tokens. When the combined value of these white tokens exceeds 7, your potion explodes and you take a penalty for that round. But if you stop drawing early, you get all the benefits of the next scoring space. Much of the game is about carefully buying new ingredients to gradually alter your odds each day. The more you add, the less likely it is that you will draw the dreaded white chips. Do you press on, aware of the new and wonderful ingredients you've bought for your bag, or is that the three white chip you can feel waiting to ruin your round? However, it's the ingredients and their combinations which make Quacks of Quedlinburg a joy to play. Apart from the basic white tokens, every ingredient has a powerful effect, either on its own or in conjunction with another ingredient. For example, pumpkins and mushrooms combine to give bonus potion progress. Bird skulls allow a greater choice of which token to add next, and garden spiders provide end-of-round bonuses if they're among the final two ingredients. What allows for great variety is that five of the seven ingredients come with four possible recipes. The individual tokens can adopt different rules, and when combined in conjunction with other recipes, vastly different game experiences can be created. There's also an expansion available which adds two new recipes per ingredient, new mechanisms, and a fifth player board. It's well known among gamers that randomness is a key ingredient in designing a good game. Too much, and the player feels robbed of agency, and the result feels arbitrary. Too little, and the game can become stale as strategies are perfected. Quacks of Quedlinburg has been designed to accept and master randomness. It's true that you can't predict what you'll pull from your bag, but it's your choice which ingredients to buy, and only you can decide when to stop adding ingredients. Most games I've played feature multiple occasions of a greedy or desperate player saying just one more before pulling the chip, which destroys their round. Quacks of Quedlinburg also has a few brilliant ideas to prevent bad luck from becoming bad momentum. At the beginning of each round, players who are lagging behind gain a one-off bonus to their starting position, ensuring that no leader can become a runaway and that everybody gets the chance for a great round that keeps them in contention. It's one of the best catch-up mechanisms I've seen in a game, not least because an experienced player can work it into their strategy.
Quacks of Quedlinburg is addictive, quick, and, despite the high level of randomness, generally leaves players feeling that they are responsible for their own choices, rather than cheated by fortune. On top of that, it's a beautiful product. The recipe books, tokens and boards are exquisitely designed and a pleasure to look at. If there's a fly in the randomly crafted ointment, it's the box the game comes in. There are a great number of small cardboard tokens, and in nearly every copy I've seen, my own included, players have improvised their own plastic tubs to organise and keep the pieces separate. While it's common for hobby board games to not provide custom storage, the organisation of the chips is such a fundamental element of Quacks of Quedlinburg that it feels notable by its absence. On top of that, the player boards are prone to bending, due to a cardboard box liner which does little to properly support the components. It's not enough to stop Quacks of Quedlinburg being a fantastic game, but it is a warning that you might need to put in a little extra homework to make it a smooth experience on game nights. It's worth that effort, though. Quacks of Quedlinburg is a wonderful experience, simple enough to be extremely easy to teach and learn, but with enough choice and variety to keep everybody enthralled for game after game. It's also not overlong. Most of the potion crafting phase is played by all players simultaneously, so even at higher player counts, Quacks of Quedlinburg won't overstay its welcome. This game is highly recommended and a personal favourite. Let's talk about Joker. Released on October 4th in the United Kingdom, Todd Phillips' Joker has grossed $1 billion at the box office at the time of writing, against a production budget of $62.5 million, making it the most profitable comic book film of all time. It's divided audiences. Editors Tom Grundy and Jane Cluett discuss what has become a cultural phenomenon. Joker's a game of two halves for me. I think the first hour or so is uneven, with too much fan service for my taste. As far as I'm concerned, you could lose the whole subplot about Arthur's parentage without hurting the film at all. But, oh, I really loved the last 50 minutes. <laughs> it's worth noting up top that I mentally classified the film as an else world, what DC calls their official alternate universes. For me, Joker has no more to do with a real character than a one-shot comic where the Joker is a pirate captain or a female mobster in the 1960s, and the film is better for it. I thought it was a surprisingly political film. The many references to social welfare being cut sharply echoes the discussion in Britain over the last ten years about austerity, debt and social care. Thomas Wayne's flippant comment about the unsuccessful being thought of as nothing but clowns echoes near-perfectly Emmanuel Macron's imperious comments about people succeeding and people who are nothing, as well as his subsequent anger. If the film had a message, I would interpret it as society has an obligation to support those who need help, or bad things happen. There's also a theme about what is funny and what's allowed to be funny. Part of Arthur's tragedy is that he wants so much to make people laugh, but his brain is wired so differently to the average person that he has no idea what actually makes a joke. The worst part of having a mental illness is people expect you to behave as if you don't is actually a pretty smart observation. And 
I'm sure a talented comedian could also make it into a funny routine, but Arthur's not that guy. I think that scene of uh, joyous abandon where Arthur dances down the stairs turns these questions very pointedly on the audience. Is this funny? Are you enjoying it? Is it okay that you're having fun watching this guy? The message gets a little muddled at the end, though, with Robert De Niro's character scolding Arthur that you can't joke about that. Judging by director Todd Phillips's comments elsewhere, he thinks people who say that are uptight killjoys who are ruining comedy. But presumably he doesn't want them all shot. It struck a strange false note in what was, for me, otherwise a strong finale. The scene in which two of Arthur's former colleagues turn up at his apartment is probably one of the best few minutes of cinema I've seen for years. It's both unbearably tense and completely hilarious. I laughed out loud, as much at the audacity of the scene as at the gags. The deliberately understated dialogue and the ultraviolence mesh brilliantly. If only more of the film was that good. I loved that scene. I mean, what a, a brilliant take that against all those indie romantic comedies where a character goes off their meds and then tells everybody that they feel so much better now. now I think the film benefits hugely from Joachim Phoenix's performance too. I mean, it's really gutsy and all in. You can tell he's worked hard on the verbal tics and creating an iconic, disturbing laugh, but those are physical details that really stuck with me. You can tell so much about Arthur by the way he walks, the way he holds his shoulders. The silent dance sequence in the toilet I thought was genuinely eerie. I, I suspect the acting is actually better than the material. <laughs> the script is clunky here and there, but every time the camera just sits on Phoenix and lets him work, magic happens. I thought the climax in the TV studio was a missed opportunity. This should have been the moment we've been waiting for, the moment at which Arthur Fleck becomes the Joker, and we see the first manifestation of that maniac genius. The scene was foreshadowed and built up so much that I was practically itching for something big. But what we got was several minutes of Arthur whining pathetically, failing to make anyone laugh, and then straightforward gun murder. The Joker would have played some trick to subvert the expectations of viewers and police alike, such as perhaps the disguised hostage gambit we saw in The Dark Knight. And this, for me, illustrates perfectly the fundamental problem with Joker as an origins film. We're not watching a man who could plausibly go on to become Batman's greatest nemesis. For the origin to be plausible, the character has to contain the germs of the hero or anti-hero we know. Traits can't come from nowhere. You see this in Batman Begins and Iron Man. Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark, respectively, have everything they need to become the heroes we know them as. In the case of these two, namely smarts and money. The films simply give them the third and final piece of the puzzle that turns them into superheroes, drive. In Joker, Arthur simply doesn't have the components in place. He's a clown, yes. And he's insane, yes. But there's more to the Joker than insanity, a clown mask, and being very pissed off. There's menace. The Joker is an incredibly menacing, unpredictable figure. He's smart, violent, anarchic, and dangerous. Joker's Arthur Fleck not only lacks most of these traits, but doesn't seem to contain anything that could turn into them. The main facet that Joker's Fleck lacks is intelligence. You can give a character a fortune, or a batsuit, or a superpower... 
but a villain known for his insane genius has to have at least some canniness to begin with before he puts on the face paint. Joker's fleck is many things, pathetic, victimised, unhinged, occasionally violent. But never do you see flashes of that fiendish brain that will go on to become Batman's greatest threat. And here is where we're in total disagreement. I think the whole point of the film is that what you're expecting to happen at the climax just doesn't. The makers of Joker were clear from the outset that their plan was to make a one-off movie that explored the character from a different angle. Since the film took a billion dollars at the box office, they may have changed their tune on the possibility of a sequel, but that wasn't the original intention. Joker is a lousy origin movie, but that's because it was never intended to be an origin movie. Instead, it's a relatively low-key crime drama that just happens to revolve around a take on a comic book villain. It has way more in common with Taxi Driver and especially the King of Comedy than it does with Batman Begins. The sad fact is we have plenty of models in real life for the kind of people responsible for unprovoked, shocking crimes. Committing or inspiring acts of terrible violence is not a superpower and it doesn't require a genius intellect. Arthur Fleck perfectly fits the profile of the average mass shooter. An unstable, tragically mediocre white man with anger management issues who maybe could have been saved if he got help early enough, but who by the time of his crime should really have been arrested for something else. If the question of the film is not, where did the Joker come from, but what would the Joker look like in the real world, I I think that's a smart and believable answer. I really love that all the chaos and upheaval the Joker inspires in this world is essentially accidental a product of larger social forces more than his own actions. Yes, you make good points. Perhaps attitudes turn upon the question, is this an origin movie? If the answer is yes, and it certainly has all the trappings of one, it's lousy, as you say. If it's a meditation on where murder has come from, then we're in weedier ground. Fleck's mental illness is poorly defined. He exhibits symptoms seemingly plucked from a smorgasbord of recognised conditions, most of which are not associated with violence. The film is therefore not much more helpful a depiction of mental illness than Jane Eyre's Mrs Rochester, locked in her attic. Should we take Arthur's mental illness seriously or not? Is this a comic book villain or isn't it? The film seems to equivocate and so doesn't convince at either. Oh, I'd certainly never argue that this was a good or nuanced portrayal of mental illness. <laughs> I'd maybe call it slightly better than average, but only because the general filmic treatment of the issues is awful, not because Joker does it well. For me, though, most of the film's problems are in the first half. It takes too long to get going, and as I said earlier, the whole Thomas Wayne subplot was one complication too many for me. It felt like a a nod to the law for the benefit of those who get it rather than something integral to how the film works. I also thought it went too far in heaping unremitting misery on Arthur's head. I mean, sure, he gets beaten up by teenagers and bankers and fired from his job, but a woman nearly takes his head off for smiling at her child on the bus. Really? A bright spot here and there would have made the whole thing feel more realistic to me without disrupting the atmosphere of hopelessness. This is the reason I really enjoyed the hallucinated sequences. That was a brilliant twist. Guessable, but while it lasted, it added rays of sunshine to punctuate the misery. And then the emergence of the truth compounds the hopelessness at a key moment. 
Well, on the whole, I, I'm in the pro-Joker camp rather than the anti, but it does strike me as slightly ridiculous that there are camps around this movie at all. I think it's an interesting film with some good cinematography and a script that asks some hard questions, although doesn't necessarily know what it thinks the answers are. I think it's elevated enormously by a great leading performance, but I've seen at least half a dozen films in the last year that I thought were better made, more thought-provoking and had a clearer idea of what they were trying to say. For me, it's good, but it's not great, and I'm surprised by just how much attention and debate it's attracted. However, I do think the fact that no two people I've talked to had the same opinion about Joker is a significant achievement, like the film or not. Also, anyone who loves Joachim Phoenix in this movie should seek out Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, in which Phoenix plays a similar character who is more successful in his quest for human connection. Miniature of the Month The Abomination Something stirred in the shadows. Something huge, feral and hungry. Then it charged towards us at a terrifying speed, eyes ablaze and wet fangs gleaming in the pale moonlight. We ran, as far and as fast as we could. Eventually I could no longer hear the thing pursuing us and judge we had escaped. Yet there was no escape from the memory of what I had seen. I had only glimpsed the horrifying face of that creature, but when I did, I knew there was a maddened intelligence behind those yellow eyes. They belonged to a monster, fashioned for awful purpose and doomed to fight its dual nature as part beast, part human. The genetic taint of the gene stealer is hardy. An infected human will pass on a strain of the virus to their children, their children's children and beyond. Part of the virus will ensure that the infected progeny and their human relatives are bonded together with reinforced ties of love and loyalty. This is how gene-stealer cults gradually establish themselves, utilising expanded family connections over several generations to embed themselves in an unsuspecting society. An abomination, also known as a living weapon or a corporaptor abomini, is a horrendous experimental hybrid of gene-stealer and animal. The fourth generation of gene-stealer hybrids in the cult are highly intelligent and see their potent genetic heritage as a weapon to be used in the defence of their brethren. The Primaceae leaders, assisted by thrall scientists, started to experiment with the larger local wildlife and the gene-stealer infection. The result of this is often failure, but occasionally an abomination is produced. These creatures are called living weapons and kept caged until the cult is endangered. Then they are released at the enemy. I loved the original Gene Stealer cult armies that Games Workshop released in the early 1990s for Warhammer 40,000. The Big Yellow Book Warhammer compilation contained all of the serialised army list information for the Gene Stealer cult that they'd released in White Dwarf. One of my friends bought it, and I'd borrow it, when I could, to read about the Elder as I'd bought a large army of Elder miniatures and needed the book to organise them into an army for our games. However, more and more I find myself reading about the gene-stealer, cults. These were such a great opportunity for a gamer and a modeller to make something distinctive and personal. 
In between buying Elder, I managed to pick up a few Steel Occult models, but I never really got round to finishing my army, and they ended up in a box in the loft after I graduated from university and left my parents' home to live with my girlfriend. Some years later, buying a house and getting a proper job enabled me to return to the hobby of collecting and painting miniatures. My collections came out of their boxes and gradually I began painting them, finding I'd improved a lot by just being a bit older and more confident. When I revisited my Steeler cult army, I only managed to find a few of the old miniatures. However, I also found that to my disappointment, Games Workshop had stopped supporting the army in their games, although the cult still featured prominently in all of their fiction. From 2009 to 2011, I worked on modelling my own updated Steeler cult, collecting lots of the old models from eBay and making new ones. I wrote a completely new Steeler cult codex, updating the old rules and inventing all sorts of new special creatures. One of them was the Abomination. The model is a Games Workshop Chimera body with a modified Tyranid Carnifex head. The extended cranium at the back was modelled out of Nidatite to match the extended cranium of Stealers and Stealer patriarchs. The extra scything arms are also from the Carnifex Hive Tyrants kits. The hair of the Chimera body proved really useful as a way to make the Abomination distinctly different to the more armoured monstrous creatures in Tyranid armies. It also helped mask some of the joins on the different body parts. By rolling Nidatite up into tiny thin strings, I was able to create an extended mass of thick hair around the upper torso and arms. The base is that of the Chimera, but has been decorated with some of the alien flora that comes with the Genestealer plastic sprues. I made three of these abominations, as the Warhammer 40,000 rules of the time were focused around vehicle and monstrous creature squadrons of one to three units. In 2016, Games Workshop reintroduced Genestealer cults to the Warhammer 40k gaming table with a new codex and an excellent line of new plastic miniatures. They subsequently released an updated version in January 2019 with a range of new utilitarian vehicles and other models. What's interesting is that the cult now have bikes and all-terrain buggies, something I had already created back when I was making my own Genestealer cult army. Alien Revisited how Ridley Scott reinvented science fiction. In space, no one can hear you scream. The tagline for Ridley Scott's Alien is captured perfectly by the opening of the film. The camera pans slowly across the quiet nothing of space and the silhouette of an unknown planet, as the title fades in one sharp line at a time. It sets the mood immediately. This isn't a spacefaring adventure like George Lucas's Star Wars A New Hope which was released two years earlier in 1977 and set a new standard for the science fiction genre. A New Hope's opening scene is even superficially similar to Alien. The camera pans through a starscape towards a planet, before the colossal white Star Destroyer chasing down Leia's rebel freighter comes into view at the top of the screen. This scene invokes immediate action and excitement. But there is an eerie quietness to Alien's Nostromo as it glides across the inky void, isolated from any contact no other planets or life aside from the crew of seven workers on board. We are shown the interior of the ship. It's cold and dirty, not like the Enterprise with its gleaming walls and bright lights. As you move through the dimly lit corridors of the Nostromo, you realise that nobody's home. At the time, this was new for audiences, 
a starship was a very unusual setting for bleakness and horror. George Lucas unquestionably popularised the science fiction genre, but it was Ridley Scott who reinvented what science fiction meant for films. Before Alien, spacefaring sci-fi was hopeful and adventurous. There were battles of good and evil, light side and dark side. You had Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise exploring the stars and overcoming adversity, plucky humanity conquering galaxies, demonstrating that anything was possible. There are some happy moments in Alien. The opening breakfast scene has a warmth to it as the crew wake up from cryosleep and banter with each other. However, Scott's vision of the future is ultimately a bleak one, in which the faceless company views the lives of its employees as expendable under Special Order 937. Previous sci-fi horror films had remained largely earthbound, while limitations in special effects limited the fear their monsters could induce. Scott borrowed the structure of the nascent slasher genre, in which a group is picked off one by one until only a sole survivor makes it out alive, although it's much easier to become invested in his sympathetic blue-collar workers than a slasher's typical lineup of grating teenagers. Of course, what made Alien truly horrifying was the alien itself, or Xenomorph, as it would come to be known. H.R. Giger was a Swiss artist whose unsettling work featured humans and machines in erotic, biomechanical couplings. As part of the special effects team for Ridley Scott's film, his painting Necronom 4 was the inspiration for the creature's design. On the film's release, there were reports of audience members fainting or running screaming from the theatre at the sight of the creature. This writer was millimetres from his seat as Barrett looks up to the rafters, just missing its curled-up carapace, and also when Dallas braves the ventilation shafts with flashes of fire lighting his way, unaware the alien stalks behind him in the shadows, until he turns around and it's too late. Alien met with critical success and won the 1979 Academy Award for Best Visual Effects and Saturn Awards for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director and Best Supporting Actress for Veronica Cartwright. Reviews at the time praised it for its simple premise, applauding it for blending science fiction with horror that was genuinely frightening. Ellen Ripley, utterly owned by Sigourney Weaver, is one of science fiction's most memorable and enduring heroes. The part was supposed to be played by a man. Weaver was cast weeks before filming, and very few changes to the script were made to reflect the change. Refreshingly, she's mostly left unsexualized. Although Ridley Scott set out only to make a horror film, Alien has come to be scrutinised by gender academics. Alien is a rape movie with male victims, wrote critic David McKinty. Following the success of Alien came a wave of films that were either subtly or overtly influenced by it. Its simple premise, its themes, and its setting. Not only did it set a new bar for special effects in a monster flick, it also provided filmmakers with a new aesthetic dialect to add to their vocabulary. That of dark, clanking, cavernous space hulks, all swinging chains and steaming grates. A far cry from brightly lit, cheerily beeping control rooms and swishing doors. This visual signature can be felt in screen media since, in films like 2009's Pandorum and the video game series Dead Space. One film that wears Alien on its sleeve is Galaxy of Terror, released only two years afterwards in 1981. It takes place on a dark and dusty alien planet, complete with an alien corpse and a man running through a dark, metallic corridor on an abandoned spaceship. It oozes the same B-movie style and campy practical effects, but fully inhabits its 18 rating, with excessive gore, dismembered limbs, and a sexual assault by an alien worm. The audience stares into the blank, dead eyes of Captain Trantor, 
played by Grace Zabriskie, as she tells you of the disaster that left her the sole traumatised survivor. However, where Alien goes for a slow build-up of tension and an explosive payoff, Galaxy of Terror feels more like a galaxy of things made to shock you. Critics panned it, likening it to a bad parody of Ridley Scott's film. John Carpenter's The Thing, released in 1982, features a group of researchers isolated in the frosty wastelands of Antarctica, like the Nostromo isolated by the vacuum of space. They come across something alien in nature, but realise too late the danger it poses. Where Alien had a sense of camaraderie, our human heroes united against the clear threat of an alien, The Thing plays a more psychological game. From the moment the protagonists learn that The Thing can imitate others, paranoia and distrust are sown amongst the group. Like Alien, the film relies heavily on practical effects, but opts for more grotesque body horror, perhaps one factor that turned audiences off. It was both a critical and a commercial failure. However, over the years since, opinions have been quietly revised, and the film is now viewed as a massively influential cult classic itself, and one of the best horror films ever made. If The Thing had been a hit, my career would have been different, John Carpenter said in 2011. Pitch Black, released in 2000, also depicts a sci-fi world of dark, sweaty spaceships and screaming alien monsters. The crew of the Hunter Gratzner, a passenger transport, crash on a scorching desert planet. Among the mixed group of pilots, religious men and entrepreneurs is the bounty hunter Johns and his cargo, a criminal called Riddick. Pitch Black plays interesting games with our sympathies, eventually settling Riddick himself into position as the most anarchic of anti-heroes. Carolyn Fry's character shines too, a Ripley analogue, willing to make the hard choices. Alien's influence can be felt more recently too. Sci-fi's The Expanse starts off with the crew of the Canterbury, an ice mining vessel, receiving an SOS distress beacon of unknown origin. The crew argue between going off course to assist and making it back in time to earn a bonus. The captain makes them aware of a contractual obligation to log and help any vessel in need, or they forfeit all pay. Sound familiar? Life, released in 2017, sticks to the near future and tacks more towards science than fiction. A band of scientists jostle on a space station orbiting Earth, collecting samples of Mars dirt for signs of life. An alien is found and gruesomely picks off the crew one by one. As with the film Alien, life seems to tell us that our curiosity and greed will be our downfall. It feels more nihilistic. We're denied a happy ending, reminiscent of the hopeless situation of The Thing, rather than Ripley's final triumph in Alien. The Alien franchise has been added to several times, but no film has managed to recapture the magic of the 1979 original. James Cameron's Aliens, released in 1986, is generally regarded as the best sequel, but it's more action than horror, different in scope and nature. The 90s brought us David Finch's Alien 3 and Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Alien Resurrection, both workmanlike sequels enjoyed by the series fans. Ridley Scott himself returned to the franchise in the 21st century with 2012's Prometheus and 2017's Alien Covenant, both dominated by his preoccupation with the alien mythology rather than the cinematic DNA that made the 1979 film a success. Part of that is its simple premise, being stuck on a ship with a killer alien. The two most recent sequels ask interesting questions, but rarely let you sit with your thoughts in the same way. A glance at the film score aggregator Metacritic shows that fans feel the magic is waning. 
Alien sequels languish in the mid-60s. Alien was something incredible, a low-budget film that tackled the sci-fi genre as very few had done before. It played on the horror of isolation in space, and suggested that discovering extraterrestrial life would not be a triumph for humanity. An increased production budget and vastly improved special effects have not yet resulted in a rival. As we hope we've shown, its legacy includes many very good films, even if not all of those are its sequels. Watch some, and see the original facehugger's eggs gestating within. Original Fiction – The Purpose Marie had just managed to struggle into the emergency pressure suit and clip the helmet down before the vacuum alarm gave her the bad news. She flung her arms out reflexively to catch a handhold as the compartment spun around her. She missed, bounced off a console and span away. Cursing inside her foggy helmet, she closed her eyes tight and forced her knees up, folding herself fetal in the microgravity. Each time her suit bumped against the walls, consoles or bulkhead, she felt the thrumming vibrations of the station unravelling around her. A lifetime passed while she listened to the mechanical lungs of her suit systems and the clatter of cabin detritus bouncing around. Finally, she drifted into something solid and stuck. Bass vibrations made her teeth rattle. The metal wall opposite peeled back like flesh rupturing into the void. A nightmare stop-motion shadow pushed through the hole in the cabin, blocking the stars, black on black. Marie thought of Julia, of her home, a poem she suddenly remembered from childhood, and was consumed. Light minutes away, under a blue sky on a picnic blanket of yellow flowers, Julia sat and stared at the black slab of her tablet. It lay propped between bread rolls on a plate set for two. Connection error. Please wait. Julia sighed and began packing away the meal. The tablet shifted out of the way and asked whether it should keep trying to reconnect. No. Let's go home. She'll call back, she said out loud. The lag was killing the mood anyway. The tablet flashed a sad emoji and scuttled off the blanket onto perfectly manicured lawn. The breeze brought the scent of cut grass and the faint snip-snip of an agribot tending the parklands in the distance. The blanket folded itself into a neat square. Julia finished throwing everything into a wicker basket held in the crook of her arm and started back towards the car park. Her tablet followed, bleeping dismay at its low battery. Sorry, Julia said absently, scooping it up and stuffing it in her cluttered handbag. Her car opened as she approached, unfolding from its parking format and rolling quietly around to make accessing the boot easier. Julia pushed the basket into the back. The seats flowed, conveying the basket into a perfectly fitted holder that hadn't been there seconds before. The car closed around her protectively as she got in. Sensing her mood, it steered itself home, playing tinkling piano at a soothing volume. After they got home, the tablet struggled free of Julia's bag and went to sleep in its usual spot over the charger, a contented snoozing emoji settled on its screen. Chiming bells woke her. She frowned and realised with dismay she'd crashed out on the sofa. Must be Marie, she thought groggily. The sofa had rearranged itself into a bed, of course, and as she stretched and yawned, it quietly shrugged itself back into the standard brown leather two-seater she favoured. She stood up. OK, enough. Stop the alarm. Julia, I'm sorry to wake you, intoned a pleasant, neutral voice from somewhere in the ceiling. But I have five priority missed calls for you. Twenty-six messages, eighteen missed calls from other numbers. 
What the fuck? Why didn't you wake me sooner? Julia cried. You told me not to allow anyone to interrupt your anniversary. It is now one minute past midnight, and therefore priority call settings have been... Fine, fine, whatever. What's so urgent? Missed call from your father. No message left. Missed call two from your father. No message left. Missed call three from your... Enough, call dad. I'm sorry, Julia. The network is currently experiencing issues, and I cannot... Julia let out an irritated grunt and stalked over to the low side table, snatched up the sleeping tablet and flipped through the manual call menu. She jabbed at her father's contact details, tapping the screen impatiently as the spinner told her, Connection error, please wait. I'm sorry, Julia. The network is currently experiencing issues. Fine, fine. Call sis. I'm sorry, Julia. The network is currently... Fuck. Call Brian, Ed, Joshua, Gabe, Dad, Lucy, Sean, Kylie. Call anyone. I'm sorry, Julia. The net... Julia frowned. News. Latest. Worldwide. She snapped. She turned as the wall illuminated, showing network logos and a spinner asking her to... Wait. Connection error. Please wait. News. Archival. What's the last you got before the network went down? She barked. The wall bloomed into the familiar BBC studio as though it were simply an extension of her living room, and a tense newsreader sat at the desk, looking directly at her with sad eyes. Behind him loomed the hazed orange-red curve of Mars. Minutes passed as Julia stood frozen, the man carefully reading from a tablet clutched in trembling hands, the same segment looping over and over. Earlier today, contact was lost with outlying satellites and stations around Mars. Space agencies here on Earth, Luna and the Lagrange points have now confirmed that that several, many of the habitats on the surface and in orbit have been, have been completely lost. As yet, we have little more. The transmission cut off. Julia wondered what the ringing noise was and eventually realised her knees hurt. She blinked slowly. She found herself kneeling slumped on hardwood floor, the wall showing a BBC network holding screen. The ringing came from the house systems, intermittently calling her name calling her back. Sure, sure, I'm here, I'm here. The ringing alarm stopped. Julia, the emergency network has reconnected after initial disruptions. I have instructions for you. What? She snapped. Julia, the emergency network... The disembodied voice said again. Yes, sure. What instructions? Julia pushed herself off the floor, noticing the black rectangle of a tablet lying face down nearby. She scooped it up, grimaced at the spiderweb cracks across its face. Beneath, a sad emoji examined the cracks from the other side of the screen. The council will establish the local emergency procedures. Stay in your home, said the home interface. Is that all the emergency instructions, she asked? Yes, Julia. The network has now been re-established, though it has limited connectivity. Call Marie, she ordered. The familiar ringtone seemed far too normal, almost relaxed, incongruous. The tablet struggled in her hand. She absently put it on the floor, and it waddled away drunkenly towards the maintenance hatch. I'm sorry, Julia. There is no reply from this number. Would you like to leave a message? The interface said mechanically. Months pass. The news from Mars dominates everything. Slowly, some answers came. There were no survivors from the first wave of attacks. Contact was lost with every satellite redirected to investigate. The Red Planet was quarantined by the first and only universally agreed law in human history. Available telescopes scooped up everything coming from Mars in any spectrum. Observers built up theories about what happened out there. Despite all the competing ideas, some facts were never in dispute. Someone or something had attacked. It had then moved all the orbital debris to Phobos, 
where something was going on, though no one entirely knew what. Networks buzzed with speculation. Governments released official statement after official statement, each essentially saying nothing. Leaks suggested that no one knew what to make of it. Nothing could get close to Mars. Diverted satellites and probes were always destroyed. Rumours surfaced of military cruisers burning off Deimos and nuclear detonations over Olympus Mons. Finally, nine months after the first attack, humanity received a message. Julia, there is a high-priority live announcement from Downing Street. Play it here, please. Julia didn't move from the oversized dining table. She'd spent the first few weeks mourning Marie. Then one day she'd woken up and something had shifted inside her, coalesced into a bottomless well of energy that expressed itself in feverish activity. Their, her, normally pristine house had been slowly converted into a sprawling workspace. Charts, diagrams and screens haphazardly plastered almost every surface. The cleaning robots had long ago broken down or become stuck, wedged into piles of books or lost under drifts of paper scrawled with notes. Julia's old tablet sat on the edge of the table, playing the address from the Prime Minister so she could watch out of the corner of her eye while she worked. On the screen the familiar face looked gaunt, hair greyer than it should be, voice dry and hoarse. We all lost something on Mars that day, the Prime Minister was saying. Maybe it wasn't a personal loss for everyone, but all of us, all of humanity, we lost something. The PM paused, sipping from a carton of water. We have all had questions, and until now I have been sadly unable to answer the most pressing of them. Why? Why did this happen? A long pause. Today I and the other leaders around the world and across the system are making similar addresses to their people. Julia stopped writing and moved the tablet to the centre of the table, her work forgotten. The little device shifted, propping itself up against the pile of technical manuals. The answer to the question is, because we made a mistake. The Prime Minister faltered again and looked bleakly right into the camera lens, right at Julia. We made a mistake. Our cleverness, our need to solve problems has led us here. Rather than being satisfied with what we had, we made it better. And we took pride in that. We made that mistake. The PM tried to go on, stopped, took another sip of water, shuffled some papers, frowned at them as if seeing them for the first time. We received a message from Phobos. Julia and the world listened. A celestial time later, an observer travelling to our solar system from elsewhere, if such an observer existed, would at first see our sun as a fairly normal yellow main-sequence star. As it moved closer, assuming this observer understood stellar mechanics well enough, it would begin to catalogue irregularities. As this hypothetical observer breached the heliopause, it would easily detect a periodic wobble of the star, a sure sign of planets. It would fall inward, noting a distinct lack of asteroids and comets. Even the sparse atoms of the vacuum were far, far fewer than would be normal so close to a star like ours. Finally, the observer would fall close enough to see the system contain nothing whatsoever but a single giant planet close to the sun. Improbably gigantic, improbably featureless, swarming with millions of gleaming ships and satellites in a perfect ballet of orbital trajectories. If it were capable of communicating, this observer might ask about this astounding artifact's origins and purpose, and it would be answered by a single consciousness. I was told to keep everything nice and tidy. I continue as instructed. 
Of course this is impossible. There are no observers. Every star in the sky of every planet in the galaxy is circled by a single, perfectly clean factory. This factory planet creates the necessary infrastructure to ensure that everything remains tidy. In some places, the stars themselves are now going out, their atoms tidied into newly minted singularities. The consciousness feels satisfaction at every step towards its goal. Every factory planet creation is mirror-polis to perfection, save for a single word of need text in a long dead language. Hoover Generic Adventure Module The Big Dumb Object in this issue, we continue our Generic Adventure module series. These articles cover a particular plot you could introduce into your role-playing game to run alongside your main campaign, or to kickstart a new series of adventures. The structures of these plots may also be useful to aspiring authors looking to put together a short story or novel. Where possible, we'll try to keep the setting of the adventure as portable as possible. This month's adventure module is... The Big Dumb Object The Big Dumb Object is a science fiction trope that's been lurking around since the 1970s, but the term was originally coined by reviewer Ros Cavani in 1993's The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Arguably, the term was derived from the titular element of Larry Niven's novel Ringworld, released in 1970. The Ringworld itself, a 186 million mile artificial habitat constructed around a sun. We could go back further. The legendary Flying Dutchman, a ghostly merchant sea vessel of the 18th century that sails the seas with no crew, has many of the attributes of a big dumb object, but stories about it focus on sightings, not of boarding the vessel and finding out the truth. In current writing, a big dumb object is usually an alien artefact of vast size that has been introduced into a conventional setting that the audience is already familiar with. The qualities of the object are such that it demands the attention of the principal characters in the story, and so it becomes a major part of the plot. Big dumb objects are also a classic feature of some of Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Rendezvous with Rama, released in 1973, is an excellent exploration story. Read it and make comparisons with the ideas of Niven and stories like At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, released in 1936. But Clark is doing something different to both of them. He's turned the environment, the huge alien spaceship named Rama by the humans who are about to explore it, into a character. This trick by Clark polished the trope and made it part of the science fiction writer's toolkit. Big dumb objects transfer well into films, providing a canvas and setting for a plot. They allow characters to discover things, experiment with them, and play out the consequences. Big dumb objects done well often aren't that dumb. Recent films Annihilation, released in 2018, and Arrival, released in 2016, hint at an otherworldly agenda behind the alien presence. If the writer wants, some of that agenda can be the way in which human characters are reading into their experience, mapping their own ideas onto the vast alien presence, which might be confirmed as the plot develops. Either way, the hint of a purpose behind the object's presence and its actions serves to maintain an element of tension in the story. 
If you decide to introduce one of these into your role-playing game, then the element of mystery is of paramount importance. Despite being the most common use of this trope in novels and movies, a big dumb object doesn't need to be an alien spaceship. It can easily become a mysteriously appearing haunted house, or a supernatural carnival like the one in Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, released in 1962. Fantasy uses are often static, requiring the player characters to travel to a location, but they absolutely do not need to be. 1986's Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones is a good example of this with its TARDIS-like properties. Or Ready Player One's Oasis. The trick is to ensure that the player characters have a reason to care about the device and a need to explore it. That could be to learn its secrets, or to remove a threat from the planet or kingdom. Many big dumb object quests are unlike other quest narratives because the environment is often inside the object. That means, as the games master, the rules of the setting are yours to play with. Once the player characters are inside, you can devise all sorts of obstacles, traps and puzzles for them to contend with. The focus of a big dumb object quest is usually one of knowledge, even if there's a specific stated goal. The knowledge might be the stated goal, understanding how the object works and finding its control room, for example. The key to keeping this journey developing towards its goal is to ensure the rules of the object remain consistent and rational. Once the player characters start to figure out the how and why of things, the focus of the adventure shifts towards their next steps. In some respects, it can be worth allowing the initial obstacles to become assets as they move on. Here's an example. Saravay's sinister sanctum appears in the graveyard of Argantos City every 25 years. It remains for only a single night. Legend has it that the city's lost treasure is hidden somewhere within the building. The player characters are inside the entrance chamber and find a door at the back. It's locked. After deciphering some mirrored writing on the walls, the player characters are able to locate a key hidden underneath one of the flagstones on the floor. They open the door and pass through into a chamber with multiple exits. A few moments later, there's a noise in the entrance chamber. A huge creature forms out of the air and begins to make its way to the door. Acting decisively, one of the player characters shuts the door and locks it. In this scenario, the games master and the player characters have achieved a number of things. Firstly, the player characters have solved the puzzle of the first room. This will prime them for similar challenges, so expect them to go looking for mirror writing whenever they see messages carved onto walls. Secondly, the player characters have a key. This key could be useful for only one door, or it could open and lock many different doors. In fantasy, the key may have magical properties to enable this. In science fiction, it could be a pass card of some kind. In horror, it could be the rotten eyeball of the former owner of the haunted house. And so on. Whenever you provide the player characters with a tool, expect them to use it. The Games Master has achieved other things to start with. The player characters are now inside the object and unlikely to risk leaving unless they encounter something worse than the creature they saw through the doorway. The obstacle placed there should counter some of the doubts they may have had about accepting the mission. As things stand, they seem to have no choice. Additionally, the Games Master now has a measure on the ability of the group to solve problems. 
The nature of an adventure like this may require people working together and using their brains. By beginning with a fairly simple opening scenario, the Games Master can see how much challenge the group is interested in and capable of. Finally, the player character's ability to communicate with the outside world is severed, or at least made much more difficult. This kind of opening dilemma can easily be transitioned into other genres. Gaining access to the derelict spaceship's airlock could be the dilemma, and once achieved, the ship's internal sensors detect the presence of life on board, activating the shields and cutting off the player character's communication with their own spaceship. Exploration of a big dumb object can work in a similar way to any other dungeon-style adventure, but it can be useful to provide clues towards the knowledge you know the player characters are seeking. These might come in many forms, a gradual collection of glyphs or symbols, fragments of a data transmission, fragments of the house owner's journal, or passcodes held by dead enemies could be accumulated along the way. Knowledge of the object should be built up with each successful transition, so player characters feel like every element could be necessary. In many ways, the role-playing game application of a big dumb object has more in common with the setting of a video game, although it's best to hide as much game-like language from the narration as possible. It's very important to vary your encounters. Player characters will seek to use whatever tools they're given, and will probably try the same tactics that worked in a previous situation before engaging their brains. So switch things up to keep them on their toes. If you want to push the pace and keep the player characters on their toes, introducing a countdown of some kind can help. Perhaps the object is in some way unstable. Or there's a time window before it leaves. Whatever the action that the player characters are trying to prevent, it will need a consequence. That consequence can even just be the fact that they'll be trapped inside. Time limits can be flexible when your environment is a big dumb object. Remember, you control the rules inside the object, so a little time manipulation is fine as long as your setting permits it. Your rules should have a rationale and some consistency. Alternatively, you can push the pace by introducing a rival. If a big dumb object is rumoured to contain a prize, then there are bound to be others who are up for the challenge of trying to learn its secrets. The best rivals are always one step behind the player characters. At times they may even become the obstacle, with both teams vying for something to get them through the next situation. They can also be forced into working together, only to renew their rivalry afterwards. This can provide an interesting way to introduce non-player characters and set up a future encounter, involving a betrayal or another scenario in which the teams are forced to interact. Eventually, the cryptic twists, trials and turns of the adventure will lead the player characters to some form of final confrontation. In fantasy, this is often the boss monster encounter with a suitably powerful enemy that stands in the way of the final reward. In this respect, the final encounter can become similar to a dungeon-based adventure. However, big dumb objects offer the Games Master something different to use for the finale. As exploring the object to find out how it works is usually part of the goal of the quest, the opportunity to utilise the power of the object, and indeed who should use it, can be part of this conclusion. Films like 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or 2011's Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides both involve the object of the quest and its use in the final act. These are not strictly speaking big dumb objects, but they set up a dilemma of power, and of whom should be given the right to execute it. If your big dumb object plot 
involves the player characters working for an external agency, the United Nations, say, in their mission to board the alien spaceship and take control of it before it crashes into Earth, they might find the agenda of their paymasters is not as pure as they first thought. Or when they reach the control room, they may find that the ship is not actually doing what they thought it was doing. Or they may find both of these things are true, and the ship can be signed over to whoever they gave the special secret code to, meaning that only one person can ever truly control it. The list goes on. There are hundreds of possibilities. One underutilised idea is to require someone to take over the ship and effectively sacrifice their character. The reward for this might be incredible temporary power in the story, but something that requires the player to accept that their character is going to become a non-playing character from now on. The focus then becomes on how the player characters determine who amongst them gets this, or indeed, if they have a non-player character with them who can do it. This could be solved through discussion, or even a fight breaking out. We call this a bauble plot. Introducing a shiny bauble into a group that has powerful gifts for whoever can control it and letting the individuals try to work out who gets it. The gifts can be the same or different for each individual involved. Again, the elements that have already been established earlier in the story can become useful tools in this final scenario. A rival team might provide extra conflict, or a suitable person to be sacrificed. A time limit might rack up the tension, forcing people to make a choice. The big dumb object itself may intervene, deciding who the best person for the job is, based on how they've acted whilst on the adventure. It's also worth thinking about how granting power to a player character can affect role-playing games. At the end of 2011's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Harry Potter breaks the Elder Wand rather than keeping it. This is a rejection of its power and signals the end of his story. In an equivalent role-playing game module, I doubt that most player characters would do the same, as the player would likely see the wand as a just reward for their efforts and think about how useful it could be in future campaigns. Whatever is determined, the game lever offered by ownership or the power of the big dumb object needs to be significant but fleeting. If it isn't, you're granting whoever obtains it the ability to overpower any future role-playing campaigns you might write and run in the same setting. Planning out this power at the beginning is a good idea, and keeping the extent of it within the boundaries of the scenario you've planned should enable you to maintain a balance to your campaign. In a big dumb object campaign, the enigmatic nature of the object itself should ideally be preserved, even to the end. Whilst the player characters may have solved the puzzles they were presented with, good examples of this trope still have cavernous depths. Once the player characters leave, perhaps it disappears only to reappear again, this time with a whole new set of challenges. Hopefully this selection of ideas has got your imagination working. On the Parallel Worlds website, you'll find a sample Big Dumb Object Adventure module written with this structure in mind. Feel free to download it and adapt it to the system and setting you're playing with. Interview Priya Sharma Priya is read by Jamie Sugar Known amongst writers for being the nicest person in horror, Priya Sharma's fiction has appeared in Interzone, Black Static, Nightmare, The Dark, and on Tor.com. She's been anthologised in several of Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year series and Paula Guren's Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror series, amongst others.
She's been on Lucas Magazine's recommended reading lists. She's a grand judge for the Eon Award, an annual writing competition run by Albedo One, Ireland's magazine of the fantastic. Fabulous Beasts was a Shirley Jackson Award finalist and won a British Fantasy Award for short fiction. Priya is a Shirley Jackson Award and British Fantasy Award winner and Locus Award finalist for All the Fabulous Beasts, a collection of some of her work available from Undertow Publications. Welcome to Parallel Worlds, Priya. It's a pleasure to meet you. 2019 looks to have been an exciting year for you. What were the highlights? Hi, Alan. It's lovely to meet you too. I've been amazed at the warm reception my collection, All the Fabulous Beasts, has had. It took me a long time to write, so this all still feels surreal. As big a thrill as when someone gets in touch and saying they've read it and it's touched a nerve somewhere. In fact, I'd go further. I'm just thrilled that someone other than my friends and family has read it. Orm Shadow has been another high for me. It's my first novella released by Tor. It languished on my laptop for such a long time and I never thought it would see the light of day. To hold a copy in my hands was such a huge deal. I loved Henry Seen's cover design and how Tor have packaged it. It's a historical fantasy that includes some hard themes like abuse and suicide, but also dragon myths. I think that's difficult to sell and they've done a terrific job. You've been called the nicest person in horror. I'm sure that's not about a lack of horror in your work. Tell us how you find working with other authors and with editors and publishers. That always makes me laugh. There are lots of lovely people in horror. The thing I've loved most about going to events and conventions is getting to know other writers. I feel like I'm part of a supportive network. As to editors and publishers, I've been very lucky, but I know this isn't a universal story. My experience has been positive 99% of the time. I've been fortunate enough to work with Ellen Datlow, Paula Gurren, Andy Cox at TTA, the team in Albedo One, Sean Wallace of The Dark, JJ Adams of Nightmare, and Steve J. Shaw at Black Shock Books, to name a few. Mike Kelly of Undertow Productions did a fantastic job with my collection. I found him open, transparent, and fair in all his dealings with me. And supportive. Very supportive. What tips would you give to a writer trying to make a start in writing horror stories? Let your horror serve the story, not the story serve the horror. Remember the difference between premise and plot. Don't shoehorn your characters into a nasty situation for the sake of it. Characters carry your reader into and through the story. Once you get to know them, they will generate plenty of horror for you. Looking back to where you started, what advice would you give yourself? None. I needed to make mistakes in writing to learn. There's no shortcut for the work. Just do the work. Everything else follows that. Who are your writing inspirations? It's a long and changing list. Jeanette Winterson, David Mitchell, Cyan Jones, Toni Morrison, Jim Crace, Sarah Hall, Sarah Waters, Marlon James, George McKay Brown, Angela Carter, Neil Gaiman, Hilary Mantle, Zachary Mason, Patrick DeWitt, Catherine Dunn, Susanna Clark, Cormac McCarthy, Peter Hogue, Andrew Miller, Jhumpa Lahiri, Michael Cunningham, Chitra Banerjee Devakarini, and Arundhati Roy. They're not all genre writers, but they're all great storytellers. Parallel Worlds is a big fan of games, films and television, as well as written stories. What are you watching or playing that you'd recommend to our readers? I'm not a gamer. I'm an escapist at heart and I worry I'd enjoy it too much. I liked what the BBC did with Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, so I've started watching the BBC adaptation of His Dark Materials with Hope. The film version from 2007 sidestepped the most interesting elements of the book, which I hope the BBC will embrace. So far, so good. 
I was introduced to The Night of the Demon by friends and loved it. It made me realise that I have massive gaps in my film knowledge. Thriller-wise, I've just finished watching The Last Panthers and found it flawed but interesting. I'm about to start Watchmen and have high hopes for that. What's your process? Are you a planner or a pantser? Or a bit of both? I'm not rigid, and the start of a story looks quite messy. I try and get everything down that crosses my mind. Character ideas, lines of dialogue, little details, events. Then I have to sift through these and start to build. It's more like a patchwork or excavation than building from a blueprint. I'm somewhere between the planner and panster. I like to have points I want to hit, but I feel constricted if something's too tightly plotted at the start. I like room to move and discover surprising things, even change planned endings completely. It makes me a slow writer though, which is frustrating, but I'm happier with the end product. What do you consider the most important parts of a story? Do you focus on character, location, plot, or something else? A good story needs to balance all of these elements. Characters are real drivers for me. Plot is never sacrosanct. I bend plot around my characters, not the other way around. Once they're vivid in my own mind, I find myself thinking, no, she wouldn't do that. She'd do this instead. A well-drawn location affects story mood, shapes the lives within it, and can become a character in itself. Do you do a lot of research when you're working on a story? I love research. I've been to stately homes, museums like the Hat Museum in Stockport for an Alice in Wonderland story for Ellen Datlow's collection, sat in a garden with an ornithologist and a bottle of wine, exchanged emails with a man who kept snakes, had a lengthy phone call with a woman with prosopagnosia. I like to be active. The internet is a great tool, but being out in the world and talking to people and seeing things firsthand adds a whole new level of texture to a piece. It informs the language I use, as well as the small truths that make my big lies real. In Fabulous Beasts, you make use of a child narrator to tell part of the story in flashback. Eliza is an adult in some scenes and much younger in others. When you were writing, what considerations did you make in trying to portray a character in this way? This story began in the first person in the present tense. I'd written a lot of the childhood sections first, and to be honest, some of the violence and cruelty were too harrowing and immediate. Making those parts past tense gave Eliza and the reader a little bit more distance from what she went through. I also wanted to deal with the consequences of Eliza's experiences. The events cast a long shadow into the rest of her life and shaped who she became. By showing her as a successful woman, scars and all, and putting the trauma of her childhood into past tense, it contextualises what happened with who she'd become. I wanted to make her a survivor in the reader's eyes, not a victim. You make use of a variety of writing techniques in your other works, including clever use of the second person in The Ballad of Boomtown. Do you consider yourself an experimental writer? I wish I had the skills to be experimental. I write from the gut and hope that it works for each story. That's not always successful. I've had to rewrite whole stories because of my alleged cleverness, changing tense and even point of view. I think one writer that pushes the envelope in the experimental direction is Georgina Bruce, with her collection This House of Wounds. Some of it is stream of consciousness. It's raw, brave and bold. When you're writing science fiction, do you approach your stories differently? Are there different techniques that you'd employ for science fiction, fantasy or horror? No, but I would say my character-driven approach hasn't always gotten me where I needed to be. I wrote something for Ellen Datlow's horror anthology about the sea, which she rejected because it had morphed into a strange coming-of-age tale rather than horror. 
She was nice about it, though. I don't mind. She was right. I think the foundations of story should be the same with regards to the care and attention to character, plot, structure, dialogue, and world building. You do it all with every story you write. Be consistent and true to whatever universe you're creating. Fill in the world beyond the lines. It won't be on the page, but your readers will get a sense of it. Some people think horror is all about the scare. What would you see are its defining characteristics? Horror contains just as many nuances and shades as any other type of writing. It can be a whisper, not just a scream. It can be creeping dread and a hand on your arm, not just a knife at your throat. It can be uneased, it can be disgust, it can be disquiet. Horror is subjective, and it's more prevalent than you think. I remember reading The Night Watch by Sarah Waters. One of the characters had an illegal abortion, which was graphic to the point of being body horror. What are you currently reading? I have a few books on the go. Witch and Other Stories by George McKay Brown. He was from the Orkneys and his work is sparse and mythic. He captures the spirit of a long-ago age in small details, a land that remembers Vikings and saints. I find his work very beautiful and evocative. I'm also reading My Dead and Blackened Heart by Andrew Freudenberg, published by Sinister Horror Company, which has got me questioning the nature of horror, as the stories are like a smorgasbord of types of horror, some quiet, others nasty and graphic. What's your next project? Can you tell us about it? I'm wrestling with a semi-rococo fantasy about switching identities, an automaton and the architecture of stories, and I'm worried I'm out of my depth, which is part of the fun. Space Engineers. Six years of building and blowing stuff up. Space Engineers is a game about building things. Six years ago, the game hit early access on Steam, with a lot of potential, a handful of buildable blocks, and a buggy physics engine. It finally left early access in February last year. Why is it so great? The core concept could originally be compared to Lego, giving you building blocks and tools to make whatever you like. Now, that concept has been vastly expanded to include a nearly infinite space to play around in, littered with asteroids to mine or build on, a whole solar system of voxel planets, trading stations that offer missions, equipment and even ships and vehicles for sale, AI-controlled ships and stations to explore, loot or steal, and a hugely improved physics engine that underpins everything. It is most fun when played with friends, and up to 16 players can play together in custom worlds. Most importantly, Space Engineers supports a huge and vibrant modding community, an easy mod integration, one click via the in-game mod manager, with full support from the game developers, meaning you can customise your game in any way you like to play your own story. Space Engineers is a sandbox game about engineering, construction, exploration and survival in space and on planets. Players build spaceships, space stations, planetary outposts of various sizes and uses, civil and military, pilot ships and travel through space to explore planets and gather resources to survive. Featuring both creative and survival modes, there is no limit to what can be built, utilised and explored. This is the description of the game from the developer Keen Software House. Keen Software House, the team behind Space Engineers, originally built the concept on the bones of their previous game, Minor Wars 2081 a game that seems heavily inspired by the classic Descent for PC, Mac and PlayStation, released in 1995. Descent featured the innovative Six Degrees of Freedom system, allowing players to pilot their craft in any direction in a zero-gravity environment. It was a massive departure from the standard first-person, third-person, isometric or platformer concepts, which are generally based around movement along one plane. 
Minor Wars 2081 featured voxel deformation and destruction, allowing players to reshape the actual game environment. Building on this concept, Keen Software House next set out to make a game where players could literally build these environments from raw materials, and build ships to fly around in them. This would also allow the ships and environments to be damaged, destroyed, repaired, modified, and personalised. This concept became Space Engineers, focusing heavily on mining, construction, and exploration, although rocket launchers and Gatling guns have been a staple part of the game from the start. Building in this game is a volumetric cube-based system, similar to the concept used by other survival, crafting, sandbox games like Minecraft and Seven Days to Die. Where Space Engineers really comes into its own is that your creations can move. The whole game is built with the Newtonian physics simulation. If you nudge your creation and there's nothing to stop it, it will drift away into the void. Space Engineers isn't only about making spaceships and stations, though. Players have constructed walking machines, 3D printers, trebuchet and catapults, monorails, obstacle courses, racetracks, even models and large-scale replicas of real-world machines and tools, and of course, all sorts of crazy contraptions like gravity cannons, unawheel motorbikes, rocket-powered chairs, and even an elevator from the Earth to the Moon. Playing around in a physics-based sandbox with mechanisms that can move leads to a lot of fun, and many explosions in itself. A large part of the gameplay revolves around trying not to accidentally crash or blow up whatever it is you're building, at least before you intend to. One aspect that makes Space Engineers so compelling for many players is that there's no point to it at all. Where the majority of games have an inbuilt story, objectives, and an endgame to work towards, Space Engineer deliberately offers none of that. The premise is loosely that you're a space engineer at some point after the second space race of 2077, and the rest is up to you. Some players simply enjoy messing around in a physics-based building environment, while others construct role-playing game-like backstories and run dedicated servers for friends to play with their own rules and even custom factions. On the Steam Workshop, you'll find thousands of player-made ships and vehicles you can add to your own game, many of them balanced to fit in player-made campaigns and factions, which are often complete with backstories and manifestos. Like Minecraft, Space Engineers is hugely enhanced by a strong community of modders, people who create additions to the base or vanilla game. While the vanilla Space Engineers experience is good fun, modding makes it amazing, and vastly expands the gameplay possibilities. Since the start, Keen Software House have worked to support the modding community, adding in many features to make modding easier and more accessible, and even opening up the game to allow modders more freedom. Keen Software House themselves have created several resources available via their website that are intended as primers for people interested in learning modding, including several example blocks to serve as testing items for players to get the hang of the coding and graphics requirements for successful mods. There are literally tens of thousands of mods available on Steam Workshop at this stage, and through them you can make your game virtually anything you want. Some mods simply adjust one vanilla block and make it easier to use, while other mods massively alter the game by adding new features and mechanics. There are even entire planets created by other players that you can load into your own game. In addition to encouraging modders to add building blocks to the catalogue and change elements of the core game, Keen Software House included a programmable block as an in-game coding environment that allows players to write scripts, or in my case load in code from smarter people, to further control elements of the ship or vehicle you've constructed. This in-game scripting is how Keen Software House makes their AI drones work too, which of course means players can also command their own armies of drones using similar code. In-game scripting allows a stunning range of modifications to the simple function of the vanilla game without installing any mods at all. 
Pivotally, Keen Software House have also included the ability to blueprint your creations in-game. This saves your construction to your computer, allowing you to upload it to the Steam Workshop, paste into another scenario, or rebuild it in your current game. A projector block in-game can be used to project a real-size hologram of any blueprint, yours or anything you downloaded from the Steam Workshop, and from here you can build it. The projector blocks also provide a way to repair your ships after accidents or combat damage. Just make sure you take a blueprint of them before they get destroyed. Over the past couple of years, Keen Software House have added AI-controlled non-player character ships and installations to the game, adding more opportunities for interactions. With the addition of mods made by the community, non-character players can be further tuned to your specific needs. By default, the non-character players don't tend to bother you unless you attack them, or, in the case of space pirates, get too close. If you want a real challenge to test your combat engineering abilities, you can use mods to create an extremely hostile scenario with AI ships that actively hunt you down, even escalating attacks if you manage to beat them back. Imagine the Cylons from Battlestar Galactica chasing the fleet and you're not far off. On the alien planet, one of the vanilla planets you can explore, there are even giant spider-like aliens that burst from the ground. They have a taste for engineer flesh, so building adequate defences is essential if you plan to explore that strange world. The community around Space Engineers includes many YouTubers who have been steaming the game for years, which no doubt helped the game gain and maintain a dedicated following. It turns out that watching people spend hours making ships and then blowing them up is very engaging. American YouTuber Captain Shack has been running a hugely entertaining Sunday survival series for several years, usually accompanied by his friend Tex and sometimes by other YouTubers and friends. Shaq tends to create a loose story as a framework to theme the game, and then they just see what happens. At the time of writing, they are on an Earth-like world with the intention of working for one of the new computer-controlled faction stations, earning money to buy tools, materials, and vehicles. To add difficulty, they've set themselves the rule that they can only apply thrust in one direction in any creation they make. This simple rule creates all kinds of havoc and entertainment as they try to figure out how to make aeroplanes transport themselves around the planet. Shaq often runs themed community events in Space Engineers, like using player-made versions of Star Wars ships or large-scale buggy races across custom-made racetracks. His first Sunday survival series ran for two years, mostly featuring Shaq and Tex aggressively salvaging their way across the solar system, showing just how long you can play the game scenario if you're having fun. British YouTuber Wasted Space has most recently been running a Space Engineers game that's a mashup between Kerbal Space Program and Space Engineers. His team started on a replica of the Kerbal launching facility, with the goal of making Kerbal-style creations to reach the moon and beyond. Using a combination of mods to bring space engineers closer to the look and feel of Kerbal Space Program, his team have, at the time of writing, finally reached Mars and established a base there, not without many, many mishaps and amusing experiments along the way. Wasted has a detailed knowledge of space engineers, and tends towards complex, over-engineered creations that are brilliantly innovative, but often so complex that only he can operate them effectively. Australian YouTuber Splitzy is known for his eccentric creations and off-the-wall experiments. Notably, after crashing a small ship, he rebuilt the wreckage into a flying chair, and in a similar incident managed to construct a jumping unicycle-like contraption that's still talked about in the community. He's also a fan of using unconventional weapons, constructing his own catapults and devices to augment vanilla weapons, often falling foul of the physics engine in the process with hilarious consequences.
More than anything, Space Engineers is about stories, specifically the stories players create accidentally because things didn't go to plan, and they never go to plan. Any Space Engineer can tell you many stories about their own games, and it's key to remember that these aren't scripted by developers as part of a story mode, they are organically occurring things that just happen. For many, watching other people play Space Engineers can be a great way to get a feel for the game. Since Space Engineers gives you no objectives, it's a game that includes as much or as little complexity as you want. I've played it for well over 3,000 hours in the past 6 years, I've played solo, with friends, and I've even run a few servers. I can't think of any other game that I've played for so long and in so many different ways. The longevity of the game for me is partially due to the dedication of Keen Software House, who have continually improved it and expanded the scope of gameplay. Partially the amazing modding community that adds so much to the potential of the game, and partially the community of YouTubers who continually inspire me to try new things and have fun. However, several of my friends have tried to play it over the years and only one of them continues to play it on and off. The others found that not being given objectives and goals meant that, once they'd met the basic survival needs of their engineer, they struggled to find reasons to keep playing. The ability to tailor your game to your playstyle and create your own stories can't be overstated, but Space Engineers isn't flawless and isn't for everyone. It's very much a game that reflects what you put into it, for better or for worse. It's unclear where Space Engineers will go next. It's technically done now, barring bug fixing and tweaking, but the team at Keen Software House show no signs of ending development. Over the years, there have been dark times, as with most in-development games, the community have been exasperated by significant and game-breaking bugs and errors. For many years, multiplayer barely worked. There have been so many physics-based bugs that the community have rather affectionately brought it into being a pseudo-god, known as Clang. It's well known that stringing many pistons or rotors together tends to anger Clang, amongst other things. Despite all of the issues and bugs, Keen Software House kept fixing and improving the game. Space Engineers currently has a rating of very positive out of over 57,000 reviews, overwhelmingly positive in the most recent 3.3 thousand reviews on Steam, and over 3.3 million copies have been sold as of 2019. The developers have always maintained close relations with the community. Features like planets, the economy, and non-player character-controlled stations and factions exist entirely because players wanted these features, and were never part of the original plan. Similarly, Keen Software House have integrated some player-made mods into the vanilla game, where a mod fitted the vanilla aesthetics and added functionality or style. For an indie game by a small team, Space Engineers has exceeded even the wildest expectations of the player base. For a game that only costs £15.50 and less in a sale, it's completely astounding. Finding Jin Yong the best-selling Chinese author of all time passed away in 2018 at the age of 94. He'd been made a Chevalier of the Legion of Honour, awarded an OBE, and held an honorary professorship at nine different universities. But the vast majority of his books remained untranslated into English throughout his lifetime. In the year of his death, the first part of his Condor Heroes trilogy was finally given an English language release. We take a look at the Chinese Lord of the Rings and why you should consider reading it, now that you can. When I found Jin Yong, I didn't know what I was looking for. I'd been re-watching Kung Fu Hustle, Stephen Chow's minor masterpiece of Hong Kong cinema, which seamlessly bends slapstick comedy and Kung Fu action. 
There's a scene near the end of the film in which two characters are identified as the legendary lovers Paris and Helen of Troy. I'd always assumed this was an English language localization. Paris and Helen are famous for many things, but being Kung Fu masters is not one of them. But I was suddenly curious about who these characters were really meant to be. Sifting through a page or two of Google results gave me an answer. In the Cantonese script, they were Yang Guo and Zhao Longnyu, the protagonists of the middle novel of Jin Yong's Condor Heroes trilogy. One dive down a Wikipedia rabbit hole later, I was left with a much more pressing question. Why on earth had I never heard of these books? Jin Yong was the pen name of Louis Cha Long Yong, originally Za Liang Yong, and usually styled simply as Louis Cha. He was born in Zhejiang province in 1924, the second son in a family that eventually included seven children. Cha was potentially outspoken from an early age. He was expelled from his first high school in 1941 for criticising the nationalist government. Although he originally intended to pursue a career in the foreign service, by 1947 he had decided to become a journalist instead, moving from Shanghai to Hong Kong the following year. This move may have saved his life. When the Communist Party took power in 1949, Cha's father, Cha Xiuqing, was arrested on charges of being a counter-revolutionary and executed in 1951. It was in the early 1950s, while working as a deputy editor of the New Evening Post, that Cha met and befriended Chen Wentong. Chen had already published his first wuxia novel under the pen name Liang Yusheng, and he encouraged Cha to begin writing in the genre as well. The two men would eventually be known as Two Legs of the Tripod of Wuxia, along with Xiong Yaohua, pen name Guo Long. They were not the 20th century's first Wuxia writers, but it's fair to say they revolutionised the genre, building on earlier developments by bringing in elements of romance and mystery from Western writing traditions. At this point, it's probably worth defining what wuxia is. Wuxia, the word translates literally as martial hero, and is generally used to mean fiction about martial arts, but not every film or book about a martial artist belongs to the wuxia genre. Wuxia generally deals with a lone protagonist, who undergoes significant trials before attaining great martial prowess, which they must use to right wrongs in the world around them. Wuxia heroes are commoners, not members of the aristocracy or the government, and are frequently pitted against corrupt officials and institutions. They follow their own code, the jia, which emphasises loyalty, benevolence, justice, courage and individualism. The normal setting for a wuxia story is China's past, but historical details may or may not be included. Wuxia is understood to take place in the alternate universe of the Zhangku, the world of martial arts, which may be home to magical powers and demons, and certainly allows its heroes and villains to access superhuman levels of skill. In the 20th century, Wuxia was also a slyly subversive genre. Its emphasis on individualism opposed traditional Confucian values and its stories of bad governments and people who resist them were interpreted by many as allegories for unrest in contemporary China. From the late 1920s onwards, there were periodic attempts to outlaw the genre in mainland China, 
proving that the ruling party was well aware of these undertones. Jin Yong's popularity is undeniable. His 15 novels have sold, depending on who you ask, between 100 and 300 million copies worldwide. They've been adapted for television and film over 90 times, with more adaptations in production to this day. So, why have official English translations taken so long to reach us? In part, it's a question of timing. The books were originally published between 1955 and 1972, well before the advent of the internet made cross-cultural exchange comparatively easy. Although the 1970s saw a boom of interest in martial arts cinema in the English-speaking world, after the release of seminal Bruce Lee vehicle Enter the Dragon, only a handful of films from Hong Kong's prolific studios actually made it to British and American theatres. Enthusiasts would often have to seek out the films in Chinatown cinemas or hope for a release on home video. Many titles were only available through bootlegging. Arguably, the first wuxia film to see generally mainstream distribution in the Western world was Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which didn't come out until the year 2000. This being the case, it's perhaps not surprising that publishers didn't regard the Kung Fu craze as proof there was a built-in audience for wuxia literature. After a couple of decades, the fact that there was no existing translation became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Surely, if the books could be translated, it would have happened already. Anna Holmwood, who is spearheading the current project to translate the Condor Heroes books, joked in 2018 that the only reason she was able to take on the work was that she was young and foolish enough to believe it could be done. One of the earliest English translators to take on the challenge of the Jin Yong oeuvre was Graham Earnshaw, who worked on a version of the book and the sword in 1979. Although he consulted closely with the author on the text, Earnshaw was unable to interest a publisher in it for another 15 years. His translation was eventually released in 2004 by Oxford University Press as part of a project which intended to translate the entire Jin Yong canon into English. In fact, Oxford University Press only published one other work in the series, John Minford's three-volume translation of The Story of the Stone. Writing shortly after Charles' death, Earnshaw said that, in his opinion, the things described and not described were the main barrier to bringing his work to an English audience. Things as simple as the appearance of clothes and as complicated as major political developments may be only briefly sketched over in the text, which assumes a Chinese cultural context. At the same time, fight scenes can run to pages long. One has to remember that these novels were originally serialised in newspapers and magazines and that Char, like Charles Dickens before him, wasn't opposed to padding his word count here and there. In addition to the pacing issue, the sheer length of the novels made them an expensive prospect for publishers, especially before the onset of digital books. Char was notoriously prolific. At the height of his career, working both as a novelist and as editor at Ming Pao, the newspaper he co-founded, he was reputed to write over 10,000 Chinese characters a day. It's notable that MacLehoe's Press's new Condor Heroes translations are coming out in instalments, with each novel in the series split into three or four parts, and each part still running to at least 400 pages. On their planned timeline, it will take a decade to release the entire trilogy. 
So, what are the books like? Although necessarily broad, the comparison of Jin Yong to Tolkien is a good one. Both authors situate their books in a mythical past. Jin Yong's 12th century China is a little closer to the real world than Tolkien's Middle Earth, but still essentially fantastical. But their stories have relevance to their contemporary anxieties. Both mix action set pieces with small, quiet moments of reflection and poetry. And both tend towards stories that play out on an epic scale. For a new reader, the sheer length of Jin Yong's Condor trilogy is what's most likely to be off-putting. Legends of the Condor Heroes, the first novel in the trilogy, is ostensibly about the relationship between two young men who ought to have been friends, but because of their upbringings, grow to be deadly rivals instead. It begins before they're even conceived, and dedicates two chapters, more than 120 pages, to events occurring before their births. The whole trilogy spans 200 years and three different ruling dynasties. Anyway you look at it, these books are a serious time commitment. If you have the time though, and you push through that initial intimidation, the books are gloriously, almost miraculously readable. Homewood and her fellow translators have opted for a very open, simplistic style, allowing the characters and set pieces to speak for themselves without embellishment. Explanation of technical Chinese and martial arts terms are kept to a minimum, so the flow is not interrupted. Most of the details are easy to deduce from context. The action scenes are grippingly cinematic, hardly surprising considering that Louis Cha was personally involved in the Hong Kong film industry, working briefly as a scriptwriter and later directing two films himself. Any fan of kung fu movies will be able to visualise the scene perfectly when a disguised martial arts master on crutches suddenly evades his pursuers by flying into a tree or a group of heroic characters play a drinking game by tossing around a heavy iron censer. For me though, the most unexpected and rewarding thing about Legends of the Condor Heroes was how well the characters are drawn and how much I came to care about them. Some of them may have superhuman fighting skills, but all of them have real flaws and frailties in addition to their moments of heroism. Some of the most moving moments in the books are when a character makes a mistake, and although as a reader you instantly grasp that the consequences will be terrible, you understand and sympathise with the decision they've made. The book's treatment of female characters made me particularly happy. Women in this world can be tough martial arts masters or vulnerable people with few means to defend themselves and are allowed to be human and complex wherever they fall on that scale. Anna Holmwood's plan is to release one part of her Condor Heroes translation annually around the time of Chinese New Year. Going by her timetable, in 2021, three years after I found Jin Yong, I should be able to meet Yang Zhou and Zhao Longnu, the characters who led me to him in the first place. I'm looking forward to it already. A Snake Lies Waiting, Legends of the Condor Heroes, Volume 3, Macklehose Press, from January 23rd, 2020. <laughs> Know Your Community, the Dungeons & Dragons Community Group. Dean Henry is voiced by Tom and Anthony Wright by Peter. 
This month, we're kicking off a new article series highlighting the various communities around the UK and the rest of the world dedicated to tabletop gaming. This issue, we caught up with Dean Henry and Anthony Wright, two of the administrators of the Dungeons & Dragons Community Group, a Facebook community of nearly 12,000 members. Hey Dean and Anthony, thanks for chatting with us. First off, how and when did the Dungeons & Dragons Community Group start? What did you set out to achieve? Myself and a few other moderators for another D&D group saw that the group we were moderating was quickly turning toxic, so we decided the best thing to do was to start our own. Our main goal was to build a community that could have conversations about D&D and other tabletop role-playing games. Is the group limited to Facebook, or are you active on other platforms? We have a Discord, as well as the Loot the Corpse subreddit. We've thought about expanding further, but aren't at the moment. How much effort does it take to manage? It's not too bad. We have a team of skilled and attentive folk who keep an eye on things. We're also lucky that a lot of the members are conscientious enough to report most out-of-place things. Honestly, the mod team straight up kills it. I spend the day, for the most part, sorting by recent posts and looking for rules that have been broken. Is the group mainly for coordinating online games, or do members meet up and play together too? I'm not sure there have ever been any meetups from our group. I do know our Discord has helped quite a few digital games get going. Are a majority of the group's members based in a particular region, or is it worldwide? The majority of our members definitely are from the USA. However, we also have many members from the Philippines, Europe, Russia, all over really. Have you seen an explosion of members in recent years as D&D has boomed in popularity? Most D&D-affiliated groups have skyrocketed in popularity with the recent renaissance of the hobby. It's heartwarming, really. I honestly couldn't be happier about it. We've only been around since May, but I think you can attribute our 11,000 members in such a short time to the boom in popularity we've seen in the past several years. What does D&D mean to you? I had a particularly troubled youth, and as I grew older, my father passed on his love of fantasy and science fiction in the form of books. It was helpful for escaping from the trials and tribulations that plagued my everyday existence. When I discovered what D&D was, it took over. It was everything I loved about books, but amplified a million times over. I can honestly say the hobby probably saved my life. It's the game that brought me so much closer to my friends. I went from seeing them every couple of months to every weekend and spending five or six hours a week with them. And of course, by extension, this group has introduced me to some of the coolest people I've ever met. Does the group focus exclusively on D&D, or are other games and formats being dealt with too? We try to make sure that players of most tabletop role-playing games feel welcome, but we do primarily focus our attention on D&D or D&D-like games. What kind of things do you do to engage with members? We have artists we partner with for promotional events, we host polls for favourite monsters, and we have a moderator who often generates conversation by asking for members' opinions on things like group dynamics and good social etiquette. What are the benefits of joining a group like yours? We're welcoming. Every single day I see comments about how people feel they've found someone new to bond with. I see folks remark that they didn't know there was such a safe and wholesome place to express their passion for the hobby. It's honestly very heartwarming and affirming that we're doing a good job. Is there anything you would change about the D&D community? Nothing that I'd change about the community per se. I'd only hope to see continued growth in a permanent and pervasive sense that it'll continue to be a loving and safe place for folks to respectfully share their passion for a beautiful and fulfilling hobby. What's the best way for communities like yours to use the internet? Well, personally, 
I really like to try and foster a sense of community within the group. I want people to feel like they can pose any D&D related question to the group without feeling or being made to feel foolish or stupid. We get parents and teachers, even ministers sometimes, who come to the group and ask how to handle introducing their children to the hobby or how to use it as a teaching or learning tool. The people who have questions like that, the folks who don't yet play themselves but are looking for a way to connect with their relatives, those are the folks we want around. I think for anything to be really considered a community, it has to have the elements of care and consideration. I think the best way we can use the internet is by providing a place where anyone is free to seek D&D knowledge without feeling outnumbered or ill at ease. Do you have any plans for the future you can tell us about? At this point, I think we're just looking to continue with giveaways and art contests. We have several artists and other talented people that have agreed to work with us. Thanks for taking the time to chat to us. Thank you for your time, and may all your roles be twenties. Alien Isolation. The perfect organism finally got its perfect game. It is undoubtedly the best game based on the Alien franchise, and will likely rank among the greatest horror games of all time. It is true to the cinematic essence of the 1979 film in a way that no other game, or film for that matter, has been. But it also breaks ground in game design. We revisit an unexpectedly special title. Five years on. The legacy of games based on film franchises is not a proud one. With few exceptions, adaptations in this direction have seemed hard to pull off not least for the Alien franchise, which for years has been the vehicle for formulaic first-person shooter games. Then, in 2014, Alien Isolation came out. Unlike previous Alien games, this was the first that seemed inspired by the original title in terms of its theme and aesthetics. Many games have emulated the conflict between humans and aliens as envisioned by James Cameron in the sequel, Aliens, released in 1986, but none had attempted to translate the visceral fear of being alone and being hunted by such an implacable creature. Developed by Creative Assembly, a developer better known for their strategy game series Total War, Alien Isolation is primarily based around stealth and survival gameplay rather than gun-toting action. It is set 15 years after the original Alien, and the protagonist is none other than Ellen Ripley's daughter, Amanda. While a survival horror stealth game isn't Creative Assembly's usual fare, it earned several industry awards in 2014, including PC Gamer's Game of the Year. The xenomorph in Alien Isolation is what it should be, what it's meant to be, what it has wanted to be again since the original release. Terrifying. Few horror games actually instil the fight-or-flight response when the threat presents itself. Amnesia, The Dark Descent managed it. 2008's Dead Space and the Silent Hill series also stand out. But Isolation was the first that managed it with a film franchise that had terrified its audience in a similar way. This is a game that makes you feel powerless. The human may be Earth's apex predator, but isolation makes you feel like a failure of evolution. Too many horror games give you something, some glimmer of hope or an ability to fight back. 
Anyone familiar with the game Amnesia will understand feeling defenceless in the face of a horrifying creature. Isolation does give you weapons to work with, but you'll find that a gunshot is a particularly dangerous choice. Loud noises are a sure way to attract the xenomorph, and at best, a well-aimed bullet will only stun it briefly. This is clearly communicated by the game. Should you have to use a gun against humans or androids, or perhaps a charging facehugger, there are consequences. If you do find yourself face-to-face with the xenomorph itself, you can drive it away into the ventilation system with a flamethrower burst, eating precious fuel but buying you a lifeline. The terror isn't only in the moments in which the alien is breathing down your neck or walking past your locker, though. Even when you're safe, you know it's there. While you're fighting Sevastopol Station's various other threats, killer androids or terrified survivors, the alien stalks you and reminds you it's still about. There is an element to the Xenomorph as an antagonist that few games have replicated. Intelligence. I don't mean a higher stat than your character, I mean in the sense that it quite literally learns. Amnesia's grunts and brutes were on rails and became predictable. Isolation's Xenomorph, in contrast, studies you. It learns about you, how you hide and your methods of escape. Come to rely on a particular tactic, and you'll soon find it ineffective. Sure, you can hide in an air vent or locker, or waste some flamethrower fuel to buy yourself an escape route. But don't spend your options too fast, or you'll find they run out. This is a contrast to many games this decade, in which an enemy may hit punishingly hard, but has defined patterns of behaviour the player can learn. Many combat games require you to study the attack patterns of an enemy, usually by trial and error. The Xenomorph isn't like that. You can't beat it, and you can't learn it. In addition, constantly changing behaviour gives the impression of much greater complexity than most computer-controlled opponents in video games are capable of. This behaviour destabilises the player. In the same way a horror film fan is left uncertain by Michael Myers' ability to appear from the shadows or get back up when you think he's dead in the film Halloween. In some ways, this part of the game doesn't feel fair. It's a creature that is better than you in every single way. Feeling totally outmatched is the entire point, and uh, isolation pulls this off beautifully. It's one of the few games that makes the computer you're playing against feel like something more than a collection of rules. It's unnerving, to the extent that I wouldn't really be surprised if it turned out everyone playing the game was actually playing against a human over at Creative Assembly, controlling the alien. In short, it's immersive. You never see or feel the puppet string move, so it doesn't seem like a puppet. I had never before, and never since, actually felt like a part of the franchise in which a game is set. You sometimes forget that you're not Amanda Ripley. There aren't a huge variety of other enemies, but their behaviours and locations will keep you alert. Working Joe androids will sometimes let you pass without trouble, and sometimes they'll try to strangle the life out of you. Facehuggers must be taken out before they can get a grip often requiring a gunshot, a risk in itself. Aggressive or territorial human survivors will sometimes need to be cleared from the path. All the while, the xenomorph is watching. The game doesn't try to make you feel special, either. 
the alien doesn't have some sort of vendetta against you, like the recurring enemy in Middle-earth's shadows of Mordor. You are simply another target. So, in addition to being the game's main attraction, it's an environmental element, one even that can be exploited to your advantage. Should you be able to attract it to other hazards such as survivors, you may be able to entice it to clear the way. This, of course, is a calculated risk. Your plans can backfire, sometimes with fatal consequences. As excellent as the xenomorph is in the game, it takes far more than that to create the ensemble that isolation achieves. Sevastopol's design is exquisite and holds faithful to the atmosphere of the original film, set for the most part on the mining ship Nostromo. The station is clearly designed not only to lend itself to gameplay with well-placed hiding spots and carefully designed corridor systems, but also capture the aesthetic that the franchise is famous for. The cassette futurism of the computer terminals, the lighting and design of the whole station instantly transports you back to the first time you watched Alien. The save points are emergency phones on the wall that wouldn't look out of place on the 1979 film set. On the topic of save points, even the very nature of progression in the game was chosen carefully. In many games, you can tap to quick save or quick load your game. No monster has power over the player's ability to suspend reality. This kind of functionality would have felt jarring and out of place in isolation. Instead, the save points are located within the station, similarly to the game Dead Space. This makes them feel valuable and rewarding and at times piles on the pressure in a tense situation. When the alien is sniffing you out, and it's been a long time since you last saw an emergency phone, you sometimes forget that this is only a game. While Skyrim players can quicksave before trying various dimly informed methods of taking on a snow troll, or Kerbal Space Program players can try that error-breaking manoeuvre a dozen times or more, in isolation, you must be careful lest your progress be snatched due to your mistakes. Sadly, there are a number of points that let isolation down. These are not, for the most part, design missteps, rather they're bugs that jarringly interrupt gameplay. While travelling with Axel, a resident of Sebastopol who accompanies the player for a while, he more than once got stuck in his hide AI stance, making advancement impossible. As for the xenomorph itself, it's hard to tell which elements of its AI are intentional. The motion detector, an invaluable tool for keeping track of it, seemed to not only misreport its location sometimes, but also clearly showed the xenomorph spawning or despawning on more than one occasion. Of course, some of this may be intentional. Faulty equipment would be an excellent gameplay element, but given there's an entire section of the game where the detector fails, the implication is that these readouts are correct. These glimpses behind the game's curtain can be a little immersion-breaking when the illusion is so perfectly maintained elsewhere. But while Alien Isolation's execution isn't flawless, that's pretty damn good. It has redefined how enemies can behave in video games, and it's also a faithful homage to the original film. Not just in theme and aesthetic, but more importantly, in scope and pace. Creative Assembly understood the cinematic DNA that made Ridley Scott's 1979 film great and made a game out of it. 
Featured publisher, Elsewen Press. Peter is voiced by Kareem Cromfley. Science fiction, fantasy and horror have a thriving independent publishing community. One of its mainstays is Elsewen Press, a small publishing company operating out of the southeast of England since 2011. Elsewen are a regular feature in the trade rooms of the convention circuit, selling their books at FantasyCon, EasterCon and other gatherings of the writing community in the United Kingdom. Peter Buck, head of Elsewen Press, has been working with authors for nearly a decade and produces an array of beautiful new publications every year. Parallel Worlds caught up with him after FantasyCon in Glasgow at the end of October for advice and information on what options new writers have when looking for a publisher. Welcome to Parallel Worlds, Peter. Can you tell us a little bit about Elsewen Press and what you're trying to achieve as a publisher? Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. When my wife Alison and I set up Elsewen Press, our intention was to be able to help authors, especially those who were previously unpublished, find a market for their writing. We knew how hard it can be to interest an agent, especially in genre fiction, so often demeaned by the literary establishment, and most of the large publishers will only consider agented authors. So, we decided we would be open to submissions directly from authors. Our hope was that by publishing exciting new work by largely unknown authors, it would help them to have more success in finding an agent and break into the big time. We were explaining this to one of our latest authors when we met him and his wife for the first time recently at Novacon, and his wife asked why we would want to help authors. Well, first off, we're just lovely people. It is demoralising for an author to get rejection letters from agents who haven't even bothered to read the covering letter. And we want to encourage good authors. What's more, when we receive submissions, we get to read fantastic new stories before anyone else. How cool is that? And it's really a great feeling when you can tell an author that you like their story and want to publish it, and just feel the excitement in their voice or email. What got you started in the business? What was the first book you released? Like many other indie presses, it was our own experiences that inexorably led us towards establishing an indie press. I suppose the starting point was when we asked ourselves, how hard can it be? Which I suspect will be on our tombstones, along with, what could possibly go wrong? Our first book, published in November 2011, was Reawakenings, an anthology of short stories from debut authors that encompassed both science fiction and fantasy. It was, and still is, a great anthology, but didn't sell very well. Ian Waits from Newcon Press subsequently told us that the way to sell an anthology is to get a big name on the cover to attract the audience. As a result, the unknown authors get an opportunity to be read by that big name's fans. That's fine if you have contacts and know some of the big name authors, which we didn't at the time. Having been to quite a few conventions now, we're slowly meeting more well-known writers, so maybe we'll be able to attract them to contribute to a new anthology. Some small presses seem to be able to make a living from anthologies, so we'll see. Watch this space. One very good lesson we learnt from publishing Reawakenings was that it is never a good idea to use non-alphanumeric characters in a title, as the bibliographic databases like Nielsen and Belkers have trouble with them, and that makes it more difficult for bookshops to order the book. The design of your novels always draws the eye when we wander past your stand. What's your process in terms of taking a book from first draft to publication, commissioning a cover and all the rest? Thank you. That's the idea, of course. But don't just wander past. Stop and browse. Other than at a convention, the first sight many readers will have of our books is a thumbnail image in an online bookshop. So we work hard to try and make an attractive cover. One of the things that annoyed both of us when we were first reading science fiction and fantasy as kids, a long time ago, was how irrelevant the covers often were. Almost invariably a scantily clad cavewoman or spacewoman or alien woman, whether or not such a character even appeared in the story. Or a cliched rocket ship on an alien planet. 
We are determined that our covers should be relevant to the story itself. So our process is that, once we've decided to publish a story and have signed a contract with the author, we start to think about the cover. Sometimes the author will come with an idea for a cover, or even a cover already produced for them by an artist, but mostly they haven't given it a lot of thought. We have a brainstorm session, feed in any ideas from the author to come up with some appropriate cover concepts. It might be illustrating a particular scene, environment, character or object, or the story might suggest a more abstract interpretation to convey the ideas behind the novel. We then get some feedback from the author. Once one concept has got most support, we then produce a brief for an artist. When we started, Alison, who is an artist as well as an author, did most of our covers, in a wide range of styles as appropriate. Now we also work with some other fantastic artists like Dave Hardy and Alex Stora, who are both well known to many fans and convention goers. And your readers too, no doubt. Because Alison is also an artist, it means that when we provide a brief, it is more likely for it to be in terms that an artist can relate to. Which is just as well, because I'm not at all artistic. So a brief from me would probably miss out all the details they really need to know. Different artists work in different ways. Some will do preliminary sketches with different options that we and the author can look at and make choices upon. Others will just deliver the finished artwork to the brief. So far we've never been let down by an artist and I don't think any of our authors have ever disliked the cover that we've designed for their book. And some have even gone absolutely crazy with delight when they see the final version. I think that the covers of three of our recent books illustrate the end result of this approach very well. The Deep and Shining Dark by Juliet Kemp has a gorgeous cover by Tony Alcock that illustrates the fantasy city setting of the story and has been widely praised. Thorns of a Black Rose by David Craig has a beautiful cover by P.R. Pope with an impressionist feel to it, illustrating the desert city where the story begins, based on an idea from the author. Quester by David M. Allen has a cover by Allison that started along the lines suggested by the author, two characters in a scene where their aura is interacting, but didn't really work. And then Alison had the inspiration to zoom in on the characters and make it much more of a graphic style than photorealistic. The final result is a stunning cover that has got everybody talking. Of course, the cover just attracts a potential reader to pick the book up, or click to find out more online. What has to actually sell the book is the story and the writing. So we work hard with each author through an editing cycle, and then a proofreading cycle to ensure that the text is as good as it can be. For each title, we use a separate editor and proofreader, so that each can come to the text with fresh eyes. I'll say more about that later. You've published some real gems. The Janus Cycle by Tej Turner and An Android Awakes by Mike French and Carl Brown were two particular highlights I found when reviewing Elsewhen's publications. Are there any other books you have at the moment you're particularly excited to be involved with? That's like asking a parent which is their favourite child. We're excited about working on every book, and we try to make sure that together with the author, we produce the best possible version of it that we can. Some books are unusual, such as An Android Awakes that you mentioned. It is a hybrid novel and graphic novel, and unlike anything we have ever produced before. It had its own challenges, such as making an ebook version that did justice to Carl's artwork, but they were interesting challenges. If you really insist on making me pick out some titles, I suppose one that was also an exciting challenge was The Rhymer by Douglas Thompson. The main character thinks he's a reincarnation of Thomas the Rhymer, so he speaks in rhyme all the time. It's a great story, very surreal, and one of those stories that is he questioning at the end whether it all really happened, or was just in the title character's mind. Douglas is from Glasgow, and the story is set in an imaginary landscape that is probably based loosely on that part of Scotland, with quite a few dialect words used, that we had to look up during the edit. But even more of a challenge is trying to edit a rhyming conversation. 
I have never tried to publish poetry, but I can imagine that it's even harder to edit. We launched the Rhymer at Worldcon in London in 2014, and when Douglas did a greeting from the book, his rich Glaswegian voice really brought the text to life in a magical way. We are currently working on some fantastic books. Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? That will be out in January. One is Shadow and Storm, the follow-up to The Deep and Shining Dark by Juliet Kemp, mentioned earlier. The cover to The Deep and Shining Dark was beautiful, so we were really pleased that the artist Tony Alcock was available to do the cover to Shadow and Storm. The books are fantasy with politics and magic, set in a fictional world with a rich backstory and protagonist that Juliet writes perfectly. Aliette de Baudard was very complimentary about the first one. Another book that comes out in January is Million Eyes, which is the first in a trilogy of time travel conspiracy thrillers. The author, C.R. Berry, is well known for short stories and blogging about conspiracies, not necessarily because he believes in the conspiracy theories, but because they're great fun to research, write about, and weave into a story. We've made a collection of his related short stories available as a free download in advance of the first book coming out, called Million Eyes, Extra Time. It links together many well-known urban legends and conspiracy theories with a common thread running through them that implicates a group of time travellers at the cause of various events, setting the scene for the trilogy, of course. The collection has been getting great reviews in its own right, so we're looking forward to seeing what happens in January. Meanwhile, to add to the fun, we've set up a website with C.R. Berry that looks like a genuine corporate website for the fictional Million Eyes company, and he has been tweeting and blogging as them as if it is a genuine company. Various people have been playing along to either cheer on the company or be horrified at the rumours of what they're doing. We're hoping to get media coverage of the supposed clashes, but I think the current political situations here and in the US have rather eclipsed it. Nevertheless, it has been fun. If your readers want to join in, the website is at millioneyes.co.uk. What are the misconceptions authors have about publishing? I suppose one is that publishers are rich, if only... I guess the likes of the big five publishing houses have large budgets, but indies don't. And we have to be very careful about how we spend ours. The other misconception is that the author delivers a manuscript and then sits back in their study, smoking their meerschaum pipe while they wait for the royalty checks to roll in. Was that ever true? It certainly isn't today. Apart from the iterative interactive process with the editor, proofreader and cover artist, we expect our authors to participate in marketing, social media and so on. Some are better at it than others and those that are tend to have much healthier sales figures. And of course, resulting from both of these is the misplaced expectation that an author can become rich and give up their day job. As you know, very few actually do make it into that elite group. But naturally, mainstream media tends to focus on the author whose debut novel is an unexpected bestseller, rather than the thousands of authors who are struggling to find an agent, a publisher, or readers. What are your thoughts on self-publishing? Why should writers look for some help? I think self-publishing has been a breath of fresh air. The advent of many established authors self-publishing their own back catalogue has helped to ensure it is not regarded in the same negative way as vanity publishing. If we're honest, the opportunities for indie presses would be much reduced if it hadn't been for the emergence of self-publishing platforms like Kindle, alongside advances in digital printing. On the positive side, it has given readers access to a much wider range of authors, many of whom would otherwise never have progressed beyond a stack of rejection letters. On the other hand, it has left some readers disillusioned because there has been a race to the bottom on pricing and, as a result, there is no quality control. Some of our authors also self-publish other titles. Our most successful author has been self-publishing for some years, since before we met him, and has many more titles self-published than through publishers. Incidentally, he is the only one of our authors out of 45 who is a full-time fiction writer and makes a living solely from his writing. If authors are keen on self-publishing, 
I think they need to invest in an editor who can work through the author's draft and identify inconsistencies, plot holes, typos, and so on. And who also knows how to format a book properly. The author should invest in decent cover art and not expect to simply use stock images. In fairness, it doesn't take much to raise your game above the level of many self-published titles. Of course, an indie press will do all that at their own expense if they believe in the book. What should a new writer expect from the process of publishing? What should they expect from working with Elsewhen Press? I suppose there is one more thing, in addition to what we've already talked about, that an author can expect from being published. And that is a degree of validation. This is the positive aspect of the gatekeeper role that publishers played in the past. And with that comes self-confidence and an increased sense of self-worth. And hopefully that translates into their writing. Working with Elsewhen Press, there are a couple more things that an author can expect. The first is, hopefully, fun. Our approach is that there is no point doing it unless it's fun, and that applies to our authors too. We mostly deal with our authors and artists through email and the occasional phone call, especially those who live on distant continents. But when there's a convention, we encourage our authors to come along so we can all get together and have a nice meal and lively conversation. Sometimes we'll have two or three, and at one Worldcon we had 20. The second thing they can expect, which is related really, is the personal touch. We read submissions ourselves, we don't use slush pile readers. We're involved in every stage of the editing, proofreading, cover design and marketing blurbs. We don't have interns. Our small team is very hands-on and we develop a personal relationship with our authors. That's why we enjoy the get-togethers at conventions so much. In fact, our authors took to calling it to the Elswen family some time ago to encompass us, the editors and proofreaders, the artists and themselves. Which I think makes Alison and I the mum and dad of the family which is a little strange when some of our authors and artists are older than us. Do you have a preference for content? Are you looking for science fiction, fantasy, horror, or a little bit of all of the above? We chose to identify as publishers of speculative fiction, which, if you think about it, is an odd categorisation, as surely all fiction is, by definition, speculative. So we're keen to read science fiction, fantasy, horror, paranormal, alternative history, magical realism, and so on. In fact... What we've found over the years is that so many of the most interesting stories are very hard to categorise. If you have a space-based story with some characters who can use a mystical force in a way that seems like magic, is that science fiction? Or fantasy? Or science fantasy? Similarly, you might have a fantasy story where the underlying magic is based on solid science and so on. We're not too hung up on pigeonholing stories or authors. What's important is that it is original, has a great story to tell, and has been written well. The editing helped finesse the last of these, but can't do much about the first two. What's the process of a novel after a writer submits it to Elsewhen? How long is the turnaround? We aim to have an open submission period each year, usually around November. We ask any prospective author to send us a synopsis, so we can see if the story sounds like it fits in with what we publish. You'd be surprised how many authors submit to a publisher with no consideration of what they publish. We've rejected romance, crime novels, and even non-fiction at this stage. If it sounds like our cup of tea we'll ask to read a couple of chapters. That gives us a reasonable idea of the quality of the writing. If it reads well, we'll ask for the whole manuscript. There are three of us on the editorial board, and our approach is that at least two of us have to read the submission, like it, and believe in it sufficiently to be able to convince the third member of the board for us to make an offer to the author. Depending on how many submissions we've received and how busy we are, this stage can take quite a while. But normally we would expect to have made a decision within a few weeks to a couple of months. Next, we'll tell the author we're interested and make sure that they understand how we work. If they're keen to proceed, we'll send them a draft contract and once they've signed, plan the book into our schedule. 
How long it takes from there depends on a number of factors. For example, some authors turn around edits very quickly. Others take a long time, ranging from two days to three months. So there's the edit cycle, the proofreading cycle, and final formatting. Meanwhile, the cover will have been designed in parallel. When they all come together, we'll lay the book out for print, and then use that as the starting point for conversion to ebook format. After testing on different platforms, we'll make the ebook available for pre order, and at the same time send the files to our printer for initial samples. If the samples are okay, we'll approve for production, and print some advance review copies to go out to reviewers in advance of the publication date. Our policy is digital first, so we publish a new book as an ebook first, and in print two to three months later. The whole process normally takes somewhere between nine and twelve months from signing the contract with the author. It sounds like a long time, but I can assure you that it goes by in a flash. Traditional publishers often take much longer. You've been at a lot of conventions. How do conventions help a small publisher? Conventions are part of the fun. As I mentioned, we get a chance to meet readers, authors, sometimes potential authors, and catch up with our friends in other indie presses. I think that's one of the very positive aspects of the indie scene. At least in genre publishing. We're all very supportive for one another, always happy to offer advice and share experiences. A convention is a good social occasion. Of course, you get a very different perspective on a convention when you're in the dealer's room the whole time. We also often arrange our book launches to be at a convention because you've got a critical mass of potential readers all in one place. We really enjoy the fan run conventions, and I would recommend them to anyone who loves science fiction and fantasy as a place to safely get together with fellow sufferers. You're not alone. What advice would you give someone starting out as a writer, an editor, or an independent publisher? I think the most important advice is to have realistic expectations. If you're expecting to be an overnight success, become rich, and retire to a tropical island, then you're unlikely to be satisfied. If you're hoping to have some fun, meet some interesting people, get engaged in entertaining conversations, read amazing and imaginative stories, and escape to a variety of alternative worlds, universes, and times. Then you'll probably be happy. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue Five. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Anthony Preconti, Christopher Jarvis, Jane Cluett, Lewis Calvert, Richard Watson, Sam Long, and Tom Grundy. With special thanks to Anthony Wright, Dean Henry, Peter Buck, and Priya Sharma. It was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett, and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Jamie Sugar, Karim Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding, and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Ashley Devine and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 